Emergency medicine extracts. With Sanjay and Mike. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's February, everybody's favorite month of the year. You know, the interesting thing about February is there's nothing. Not, there's not. Oh, no, sorry. There, there's the one. Well, it's short, and it has a variable length, which is pretty cool. And it has Valentine's Day, so you can kind of like, if you're into that, you can focus. There's not like. I'm just gonna say this: seven holidays. Uh, no. If if you're into Valentine's Day, you're not listening to EMA. Boom! Called it right there. Go ahead, send in the hate mail. I want to hear it. I don't. Say, I don't think hashtag that's true. into Valentine's Day. I don't think that's true, but I do think, I think you're, you're right. <laughs> It is certainly there's a lot a big component of it is like, you know, kids at school passing out Valentine's and stuff. They're not listening. I'll grant you that. But some adults are into it. Just because you're you're a curmudgeon. I'm not a curmudgeon. You're that's actually a curmudgeon. No. That's not fair. You're not into Valentine's Day. <laughs> Nobody's into Valentine's Hashtag I'm into Valentine's Day. I wanna see it. I wanna see you guys wearing see, the, the the heart. I don't know if everybody listening, if you're like now we can almost say like a long time listener. We've been doing this like three or four years now. Three or four? What are you talking? We've been doing this forever. No, the like. EMA program. Paper Chase, we've been doing a lot longer than that. Yeah, but Even EMA feels like about Okay, if you're a long years. time Sanjay and Mike listener, you'll know that when Mike is especially curmudgeon in the intro, that sometimes sets a strange tone. It's gold, Jerry. It's, it could, it, it, well, it sets a tone. You don't know which direction <laughs> it's going to go in. But, uh, you know, even, I got to say this, even Mike's curmudgeoniness right now can't bring me down. Why is that, Sanjay? Well, because- I feel you know, like I'm a straight man here. No. Give me, walking you into a joke. No, right, but no. I have no idea what the joke we're is. Listen, we're listening to everyone in the, on this, uh, you know, listening. is listening to February, but right now we're taping this in uh, end very, November, or sorry, early December. And I got to say, over the last few weeks, I've realized this is like my favorite time of year. Well, it's just so great because everybody's kind of in a good mood. We're sort of between holidays. Our house right now is all decked out for Christmas, so it feels very warm and friendly. We just had two really nice holiday celebrations with friends. We had a Friendsgiving, which I hosted at my house, which yeah. I usually host at my house, which is super fun. And then Mike actually hosted Thanksgiving this year at his house, which yeah. usually you go to your mom's. Yeah. But uh, so we got uh, to bring brother, the kids. Everybody's out of town and stuff like that. So, so know. we got to bring the kids over. Yeah, and it was great it was just, times. And we sort of have college football going on. And this year is especially interesting because we have World Cup. Well, the World Cup has been... Fantastic. And we're still in the group stages. So, you know, I won't, you know, don't tell me, future people, <laughs> don't tell, don't us tell who me won. what happened. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, there's just like so much good going on. There's so much well, I was, happy feeling. I will say, I was very, you know, opposed to this Qatari World Cup because it's like kind of ridiculous that it's in this little country that doesn't play football and stuff. And I was super irritated that it wasn't in the summer and that it was in the winter. And now I'm like, World Cup should always be in the winter. It's so great. You know, there's a there's a lull in sporting activities, I feel. Like. I, I know there's a lot of sports going on, but somehow it feels like this is right. It should be part of the regular. I totally agree. I love it. I'm loving the feel of it. And I'm not at all trying to sort of take away from the fact that I recognize that everyone working out there right now, us included, we're in the clinical areas, we're hurting. You oh, know, yeah. it's, it's brutal. It's really bad. It's very brutal. Every shift is kind of soul crushing. I guess I'm just trying to sort of turn it and focus it and say, well, outside of work right now, there's a lot of good stuff going on. I'm really trying to keep focused on that. And I'm just, I'm in a good mood. Well, you know, and the other part of it is that, you know, we figured out if, if that doesn't lift your spirits, I think we decided a place where you could have your spirits lifted. Oh, we, are we, this is our yesterday gonna, invention. Well, by February, there'll probably, probably be, there'll all probably be 40 chains yeah, across the United States. Come up. 
with what we're going to do in our semi-retirement, which is still a little bit away, but not that far. Yeah, and so we two are years going, further from me right, than for you. We are going to open up a theme bar restaurant. Yes. Because there just aren't enough of those. It's, it's loosely based on Dave and Buster's, <laughs> although patent lawyers, if you're out there listening, it's not, it's not based at on all Dave based on Dave and Buster's. It's called Sunjaysters and Mikesters. <laughs> it's something like that, the name, but it's going to be like a Dave and Buster's, but sort of like an 80s yeah, theme. It's a retro. Dave and Buster's. Old school arcade games. Old school arcade. Like we're talking, you know, nothing past Galaga. Yeah. Like we want to be able to hand the little game cartridge and you have to blow in it to blow the dust <laughs> off the, of it. To put it in the Atari 2600 console. Yeah. So you got to flip the button. One button. Hey, the, the one lever joystick. isn't working on this thing. Yeah. yeah. The joystick has one button. You might have to It fiddle. doesn't have like these, these things yeah. nowadays that have like 14 buttons. You can't do no, those. That's you might have possible. to fiddle with the plug a little yep. bit to really, to really get it to <laughs> lock in. Yeah. It and literally goes into a TV, like so, an old school so CRT TV. Good old school games, good old school TV playing. Absolutely. We got to have like perfect strangers in the uh, background. Family ties, family matters. Oh, it's got some Urkel and some Michael J. Fox. Oh, yeah. Now and then get... it's going to have 80s music, of which course. that's everywhere now. That's yeah, like, but still, but, thanks to but us. But at least, I think, yeah, I think that's... because we've been saying this on EMA, people have really picked up on that. Yeah. But one thing I found very interesting, and the, I think the reason this idea came up at all is interestingly, for the first time, maybe in my life, I went to a Dave and Buster's earlier this week with, uh, with my wife, Amanda. And she pointed out to me that there were three Long Island iced teas on the menu, which is, that's impressive. Yes. And we I didn't said, know you could have three different kinds of Long Island iced tea. I thought it was only one thing, which is like all the booze we have and a splash of Coke. Isn't that yeah. what? Uh, well, I guess it's a splash of Coke versus a splash of Dr. Cherry Pepper Coke. versus a splash of vanilla Coke. <laughs> In the three different, I didn't actually look at the ingredients. <laughs> yeah. It was funny that they were there, but in Sanjay and Mike's or Sanjay Stirs and Mike Stirs, we're still working out the name. We're gonna have an old fashioned menu. Yeah, old fashioned. Seventy five old fashioned. 80, 80. 80 old fashioned. Eighty games. Eighties music. Eighties TV. Eighty old, old fashioned. Sanjay Mike's eighties. We'll send you guys all a coupon. <laughs> Buy one, yeah. get one free. Eighties old fashioned. So look for one soon near you. That'll even, if you're not already in a good mood from the holidays, that'll put you in a good mood. Yeah. And we got a good... Yeah, let's get some Pong on. Speaking of good... Oh, we're going to talk about some abstracts? I think we we got a good month ahead. So we're going to be doing uh, 20 abstracts this month. I've got a lot of peds stuff in mind, actually. I've got peds intubation. I've got peds resuscitation. I've got peds head trauma. I've got one peds paper, which is, you know, okay. My problem with this month is I got a lot, you know, some months it just, the way the cookie crumbles, you end up with certain types of uh, studies. This month I've got the old retrospective chart review, which, you know, sometimes is good, sometimes is bad. And we'll work through them and see which ones you guys think are good and bad. Yeah. And then, so after our 20 papers, obviously they'll be summarized by Jess Jess and Jenny. And then we're going to, you know, talk a little nerdy, triple T-A-L-N, and it's conflicts, period. Well, it's conflicts of interest. Oh, conflicts and of interest. Oh, and right. publications. I thought this was some geopolitical analysis no, of. Oh, okay. I think that makes more sense. Actually, they're specifically focusing on New England Journal and the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association (JAMA), which is it's actually a great topic, right? Mm-hmm. Because I had a couple of papers. I think last month, one this month, where there is a conflict of interest, and it's like, how should that impact the way we read the paper? I think it's a really interesting yep. topic. Absolutely. So 
What do you say? I think that's, let's see, my checklist here. Yep, yep, we covered that. We covered, yeah, it's time to go. Let's do it. Pay for chase. Abstract number one. Video-assisted laryngoscopy for pediatric tracheal intubation in the ED, a multi-center study of clinical outcomes. This is by Miller et al., from the ever-illustrious annals hey, of emergency before medicine. before you continue, and I know it's the first paper, but still, the author list is Miller K.A., Dechnik, and then Miller A.F. And I just I love you, it. This, this to study is Miller A.F. I love we're, it. We're <laughs> off to, and interestingly, they don't use a Miller. <laughs> well, I thought the video, no. Dang. So, pediatric airways, we do talk about them a lot. I think both on the EMA program and probably just clinically, it's something you think about a lot because first pass success on like adult airways is low. It's reported to be as low as 50%. And often there are high rates of physiologic deterioration when compared with adult airways. This is due to a combination of things. We don't do them a lot. There's differences in the anatomy and physiologic predisposition in little kids to bradycardia. So they're high stress situations. Now, the value of VL, or video laryngoscopy, is another thing that we talk about a lot. So first, there's pediatric airways. Are we having a recess moment here? Two great tastes that taste great together. Hey, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter. You got peanut butter and my chocolate. What? What? I think that's really the question, right? Because people seem to have really strong opinions on this one. Like, you should always be doing VL. You should always be learning on DL. You know, it's kind of both camps have a lot of, they feel passionately about this issue. And the literature is mixed on the topic. So you get to be passionate because you can sort of pull whatever paper you want, right? The largest recent effort on the topic was the Viper trial, which we covered here on the EMA program, which was looking at VL and about 500 kids, and they didn't see any advantage to using the video. Now, in this study, the authors are essentially asking the same question as in the Viper study, but they make use of two existing prospectively collected data sets, the NEAR for children, the NEAR for kids data set, and a pediatric data from a pediatric emergency medicine airway education collaborative. Together, we're looking at information from 11 emergency departments spread out across the United States and Canada between 2017 and 2021. They define, they're looking at first pass success here, and they define a successful attempt as one blade insertion, which is exactly what they did in Viper. That's really common. So if you put the blade in and you have a couple of passes with the tube to get it, that's still a success as long as you don't take the blade out and reposition. And they present data on 1,400 intubations. The median patient age was 37 months, so right around three years old, and VL was used in 76% of cases. So this was not a trial, right? This is observational data from these pediatric emergency department centers. One more thing I wanted to mention was that the overall first attempt success was 70%, okay? And that's very much in line with a lot of these pediatric airway studies, right? That's not sort of representative of, generally speaking, what things look like in the wild, but when they publish these airway studies, usually they're around 65, 70%. But the site level variation here was very high from about 50% as a first pass success rate to about 85%. And that's going to become important in a second. So they ran a multivariable regression model and they found that VL use was associated with higher first attempt success 
at an adjusted odds ratio of just over two. They looked at lots of minor and severe adverse airway outcomes and basically found that patients intubated with VL had a non-significant reduction in the odds of any adverse airway outcome and a statistically significant reduction at an odds ratio of 0.7 in experiencing a severe airway outcome. They also looked at severe hypoxemia, defined as an O2 sat less than 80, and here also they found a statistically significant drop when using VL. Now, the VL use also ranged a lot by site, from 12% to 98%. So there were some places where basically every airway is getting done by VL, and some places where they hardly Only the ever ones use it at all. When they, they got to dust that thing off, I guess. Yeah, so e- and we don't know if those were the really, really hard cases where they dust it off or the easy ones where they're like, we don't do this a lot, I'm going to try it. Right. For my, so we really don't know. Again, it's not a trial, so we can't know. But they do say they have they actually a lot of statistical analysis in this paper for what seems on its face like kind of a straightforward study. They say that sites with higher use of VL and they have a cut point of more than 80%. So if more of your 80% of pediatric airways are done by VL, had a higher first attempt success rate, even after adjusting for individual patient level stuff, whether or not they used a VL or not on that particular case. So they're just saying, where you do a lot of VLs, you're better at doing airways. Right. So unless they, account, they did an adjustment for site using site fixed effects, then that's going to bias the results in favor of VL. So, Which I don't know if they did or not. I think that that's a lot of the problem here, right? Mm. Is it's a lot of data. It's three times more kids than the Viper trial. And it's a pretty well done study, but it's not a trial at mm. the end of the day, right? We just don't know why VL was used in some cases and not others. We don't know why it's used 100% of the time at some sites and none of the time at others. And I think what they're saying here, Okay, they kind of have a big discussion about this and they talk about Viper and they're like, yeah, Viper was sort of a negative study and ours is highly positive. I mean, I think they're over enthusiastic about their conclusions. They kind of say this should be the standard based on what we found here. But how do you explain the difference with Viper? And what they're saying is it's a little strange. I kind of need to chew on it for a second. Is they're saying in Viper, all the cases were an indirect use of VL. So basically, everybody was told to look at the screen, right? Look at the screen, kind of like you think about like a GlideScope. Mm-hmm. I use a GlideScope, a hyperangulated blade. Look at the screen, and they're saying, okay, maybe then that's not right. Here, it was more of a dealer's choice. You got to use a CMAX style thing, and they kind of feel like maybe the advantage of the VL they saw was due to even a second set of eyes. They kind of have this discussion about, okay, the resident's going in with like a CMAX, they're doing a DL, the attending's looking at the screen, so an indirect use of the VL and kind of saying, eh, I don't think you're quite there, or, go a little deeper. Yeah, or that happens sometimes, you can say, well, I'm not seeing things very well, and then you can look to the screen yourself and do it as an indirect, so you're almost getting two passes with Exactly one. right, and we covered a it's paper possible. a few months ago where they sort of talked about, remember, those different strategies yeah. mm-hmm. of using VL, the switchers versus yeah. the stayers. Yeah. You know, here they might have been more switchers, and maybe that's more effective, so, you know, what do we do with all this, right? Is this supposed to be the new gold standard? I don't think so, right? I think we have two relatively well-done studies that say different things. For me, this just still means that there probably is value in VL. I'm going to go a step further and say there is value oh, yeah. in VL, but 
I'm old school and there's no question that we need to know how to use VL. Right? Absolutely. I mean, you need to... Even in pediatric kids, yeah, yeah. I think Absolutely. the messages come through loud and clear for adults, yeah. but you may not even have the equipment right. to do like, so I think you it's should. worth at this point getting it, learning it, but saying it's a mandate is no. a little bit too heavy handed for me because there's so much conflicting data out there. But I think it's clear that there's going to be some patients who benefit from VL. We just have to kind of hone down on which ones those are. Editor's commentary. The authors of this well-done study come out reasonably strong, saying that we should move towards video laryngoscopy for all pediatric intubations due to a combination of higher first-pass success and lower adverse airway outcomes. But this is observational data, and despite adjustments and an excellent statistical plan, it is still possible that there are unmeasured variables that explain the observed differences. Also, we need to take their data in context with other published studies on the topic, including Viper, which showed no difference with VL. It does seem like the more you use VL, the better you get at it, which makes sense. And I think it opens the door to the idea that not all VL may be the same, as some techniques and devices may be better than others. I think we are at the point where you should practice and learn VL on kids, but not at the point of a mandate for all cases. Abstract number two, trial of endovascular treatment of acute basilar artery occlusion. This is by Tao et al., and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. So endovascular therapy for suitable candidates is clearly the most evidence-based acute stroke therapy that we have. To date, the evidence is best for large vessel occlusions involving the anterior cerebral circulation. But the effect of this therapy on the posterior circulation strokes has been more difficult to understand. And two small trials that we covered failed to show superiority of endovascular therapy in that group of patients. And for what it's worth, that group of patients, so patients with vertebrobasilar strokes, have terrible outcomes. Interestingly, those two small trials that failed to show superiority actually did have differences in the point estimates of endovascular therapy versus you know, medical management that favored endovascular therapy. They were just very small. So that set up the idea that we need a larger randomized trial. This is that larger randomized trial. This is called the Endovascular Treatment for Acute Basilar Artery Occlusion. And obviously, if I wrote that out, it's because I want you to try to guess the acronym, the endovascular, endovascular treatment for acute basilar artery occlusion. Etba. Attention. Attention. Impossible. <laughs> Attention. Thank you very much, guys. It's an open-label randomized controlled trial of people with stroke and basilar artery occlusion randomized to standard medical management versus endovascular therapy and medical management. The inclusion criteria were extremely strict. To be included, patients had to be treated at a major stroke center. These centers had to have performed more than 100 endovascular procedures in the year before the trial. More than 100. I mean, I don't think our centers performed 100, period. They had to have very short times to TPA and to needle puncture and very highly experienced endovascular proceduralists. So not only did they have to do 100, but any individual proceduralist had to have more than five years of experience at doing that kind of volume. So very, very specialized stroke centers. The patients had to have confirmed vertebrobasilar occlusion on imaging 
and they had to have severe stroke symptoms, an NIHSS score of greater than 10. The symptoms had to be of less than 12 hours duration, and they had to have basically an otherwise normal appearing brain on the CT. So they couldn't have like, you know, swelling and things like that that would pretend a bad outcome. Patients who presented within the 4.5 hour window were also given TPA if they could afford it. They make an actual big point of saying that like not everybody got TPA because in China, I guess you have to purchase it yourself, which is, you know, the case in a lot of third world countries. I was just kind of surprised that that was the situation there, but they, they made mention of that. The key primary outcome was good clinical outcome, which was defined as a modified Rankin scale score of zero to three at 90 days. Other outcomes included mortality and the intracranial hemorrhage rates. So I have no idea how they did this, but they enrolled and randomized 342 people over a 10-month period from February 2021 through January 2022. That's a lot of acute vertebral basilar strokes in 10-month period. In a time window where we're just coming out of COVID and trying to figure out how to get research up and running again. That's impressive. It's, I mean, it's crazy. The enrollment was a little funky. They did it in a two-to-one ratio with twice as many people in the treatment arm, but that is consistent with what their sample size and study design was. The mean age was 66, 70% were men. The baseline NIHS S score was 24. So these are devastating. These people were so sick. Those are really, really high numbers. The mean time from stroke onset to randomization was five hours, and then they got them in the endovascular suite within 30 minutes after that. About a third of the people in each group got TPA. So what happened? Well, it worked in a big way. 46% of the thrombectomy group had good clinical outcome versus only 23% in the control group, so an odds ratio of about two. For a modified Rankin score of zero to two, right? So, you know, uh, a little bit better than the zero to three, the results were even a little bit better. So 33% of the people in the thrombectomy group had that better modified Rankin score versus only 11% in the control group. Death within 90 days was much higher in the medical group, 55% versus 37% in the endovascular therapy group. There were a lot of subgroup analyses and basically everything favored the thrombectomy group, even patients who did not have intracranial atherosclerosis. And the reason I bring that up is because Chinese people tend to have this, whereas Westerners tend not to have that. And that's always been a criticism of studies of stroke out of China, like, okay, you know, sure, but, you know, does this really imply to us where we have more AFib that throws the clot up into the brain, etc. And just to get a little further in the weeds on this, I learned something in reading this paper and then reading beyond that. Turns out this intravascular or sorry, intracranial atherosclerosis thing, the reason it's such a problem is that you can't just suck the clot out. You actually have to then stent open the vessel and then do like angioplasty or something like that. So it's a much more involved endovascular procedure. And so it, it does actually change the approach. So EVT encompasses thrombectomy with or without these other techniques. And in our, you know, unless you do this kind of stuff a lot, then you might not be very good at the other part of this technique. So anyway, whatever, that's just for your learning. For the record, there was a second study published alongside this one in the New England Journal, also looking at EVT for patients with vertebral 
basilar strokes in a separate Chinese population at the same month, this past month, in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed the same results. Hugely in favor of EVT compared to medical management alone. So taken together, these findings do represent a big change in the supporting evidence for this approach. There are still many unanswered questions. Probably most important is what happens when this strategy is applied to less selected patients and in less specialized centers like the ones we all work in. So does it still work? We just don't know that. But this does provide some hope for patients with these otherwise devastating strokes under very selective circumstances. Editor's commentary. This large RCT shows fairly convincing evidence of a functional and mortality benefit to endovascular therapy for patients with severe stroke symptoms and proven vertebral basilar occlusion. These findings are amplified by a second study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that had similar findings. There remain questions about whether this Chinese population generalizes to other patient groups or other centers with less experience in endovascular therapy, but this appears to be a proven therapy under these circumstances. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Evaluation of the PCARN rule for traumatic brain injury applied to infants younger than three months and creation of a modified age-specific rule. This is by Alonzo Cadenas from the European Journal of Pediatrics. So clinical decision instruments like the PCARN head CT rule are very useful. We use them all the time. This one particularly has a sensitivity close to 100% in the original derivation work and some of the validation work and has the potential to decrease unnecessary CT scanning in kids with minor head trauma. Although the rule broadly divides patients, pediatric patients, into two groups, little kids, they say younger than two years old, and older kids, right, older than two years old. Research by Dr. Cooperman, who is sort of the, you know, the, the godfather of all these PCARN studies. The grand architect. Yes, and others and have shown that the population of kids less than three months old, warrant special attention, as they have higher than expected bleed and skull fracture rates, even if they're not what, how they define as clinically significant, right? Because for, for to be clinically significant in their rule, someone has to go do something mm-hmm. about it, right? So if you miss something that, you know, the tree in the forest situation, you're okay. But they do have higher rates of these non, what they call clinically significant findings, And this is due to a combination of anatomical differences in these little, little kids, just a few months old, and difficulty in really doing a mental status assessment. So here are the authors from the PEDS group, which spans 13 EDs in Spain. And these guys are doing like a lot of really interesting work. And we keep covering papers from them, and it just keeps getting better and better, truthfully. They conduct a prospective observational study of specifically infants less than three months old presenting less than 24 hours out with minor head trauma with sort of two goals. The first one is doing another external validation of the PCARN rule. And the second one is creating their own age-specific rule for these kids, these little, little kids less than three months old with minor head trauma. As part of the local protocol, basically they applied PCARN to all these cases So not everybody got a head CT, right? They tried to follow that PCARN algorithm. 
Of just about 22,000 minor head trauma patients, about 2%, so 386, were less than three months old. Median age, right around 50 days. So we're talking here, the sample at the end of the day is 300, almost 400 kids. Got it. Of those kids, a few of them didn't have full data. 230 met PCARN low-risk criteria and 136 did not. This was kind of interesting. They say that about half the kids got imaging at the end of the day, but only 10% got a CT. The rest were plain films. Whoa, skull x-rays? Skull x-rays. So they were nice. doing a lot of skull x-rays over there, which I found Because we always see that, like, and we're like, who's still doing skull x-rays? Yeah, well, I, you know, here, four-fifths of their imaging was actually skull x-rays As a total cases. aside, as a total aside, you know, my brother now lives in Spain, and he's got two small children who, over the past several months, have had, I swear, I swear to you, like 10 ER visits for a variety of things. And, I mean, like, all sorts of wacky things. And I've been really impressed, I guess is the word, with their use of technology. Like they are using, like they get ultrasounds on like everything. They're like skin abscess. They're like, we got the ultrasound, like formal ultrasounds. They sent me the reads and stuff like that. So I'm just sort of surprised that, you know, they're using this sort of like, sort of, I'm going to say antiquated technology, yeah, maybe but maybe they right. yeah, maybe they got, if they, maybe they're going to something here. So the sensitivity and negative predictive value of the PCARN prediction rule for clinically important traumatic brain injury in their sample was 100% and 99.7% respectively. And of the 230 meeting PCARN low-risk criteria, none had a clinically important traumatic brain injury. That was goal one. Boom. Validate this thing again. It's good. Congratulations, PCARN. They then provide an exceptionally well-written description of the development of their own rule called the Spanish Traumatic Brain Injury Low-Risk Criteria for Infants Less Than Three Months Old, and they basically follow all statistical best practice guidelines and techniques for this rule development. It's got it all. It's a clinic on how to develop a rule, and if you're interested in that kind of thing, if you're a researcher, just check out the method section of this paper. Their best predictive model generated the following rule for identifying low-risk infants. Absence of abnormal behavior as per the parent or guardian, palpable skull fracture, scalp hematoma excluding frontal, and severe mechanism of injury. Now, this is actually really similar to PCARN, right? It's, it, it, it kind of has all the elements in it, except it's missing loss of consciousness GCS, which is pretty hard to do on a kid anyway. But that's also like abnormal And behavior. altered mental status. That would get but those are captured. part of PCARN. I know, but that would get captured. I, I feel like they just lumped those two together and said, hey, is the kid acting right or and not? And they, they also had a subtle change mm. of the change. What they define as a significant mechanism is like fall from height. And in PCARN, it's 0.9 meters, and they change it to 0.7. Spanish beds maybe. Sp- I was, was going to say, you know, they're smaller people. But they, had, they so. actually had a reason for it. But anyway. <laughs> The sensitivity and negative predictive value of their rule was 100 well, and 100. Be. 100 and 100 for clinically significant. I mean, the other one was 99 point something, so it better be better than that. Otherwise, there's no point. So there was a subtle difference, obviously. And the subtle difference was that there was one infant with a small epidural with no shift that was deemed not clinically important that was categorized as low risk by PCARN but not as low risk by the Spanish. So it was like one patient flipped over. So, you know, 
the authors are they're very honest about this. They're like, hey, we're making a new rule here. This needs lots of validation and external. They're not saying to use the new rule. I think the point is to say that it's a really nice external validation of the PCARN rule. It's a reminder to know the PCARN rule and use it. The major limitation of this study here is a very small number of true positives. So their confidence estimates are pretty large around their findings. But really nice paper, good statistical methods, and a good reminder that we can reduce unnecessary head CTs using clinical decision instruments. Editor's commentary. The authors from the PEDS group in Spain have consistently put out high-quality research, and this paper is no exception. In part one, they perform essentially an external validation of the PCARN head injury rule in infants less than three months old. They also develop a new rule for this age group called the Spanish low-risk criteria, which they suggest may have increased accuracy, but acknowledge it needs further validation before it could even be considered for use at the bedside. Regardless of what rule you're using, Remember that because of a combination of anatomical differences, such as thinner skulls and difficulty in assessing mental status as a result of limited interactivity, this less-than-three-month-old group is a high-risk cohort, and we must take more caution in our approach to CT than we do with older infants and kids. Abstract number four, IV metoprolol versus diltiazem for atrial fib with concomitant Heart failure, this is by Compagner et al., and it's in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. This is another retrospective study looking at which agent is better at controlling rapid ventricular response AFib, metoprolol or diltiazem. I honestly, at this point, I don't know why we keep doing these articles. And after this one, I think I may put a two-year moratorium on anything on this topic that's not a large-scale randomized control trial. The background's easy. Doctors like diltiazem, ED doctors. We believe it works faster and is easier to redose and titrate. Most of the available data for patients with rapid ventricular response AFib says this is true, or at least is it's neutral relative to metoprolol. But we readily admit that there's very limited data on the topic. And that's why we keep, when there's a paper, we pull it. The problem with diltiazem is that it does have a known negative inotropic effect beyond its negative chronotropic effect, which at least theoretically means it may be a poor choice in patients with heart failure compared with metoprolol, which only has you know this negative chronotropic effect. The current AHA guidelines therefore recommend avoiding calcium channel blockers in this family in heart failure patients. But we don't like that because it ends up taking too long to get the rate under control when you use metoprolol. And there's basically no clinical data that suggests we do actually push people into heart failure. So these authors have a really good research question. In patients with a history of congestive heart failure presenting with AFib RVR, which agent is more effective at reducing the heart rate in the short term? And is there a difference in the rate of developing side effects such as CHF, acute CHF, between the two agents. See, now, this seems a little different than some of the papers it we've is covered a little on different. this topic. I think I'm still interested. No, no, of course. It's a great question. Again, and just to highlight, I mean, you've clearly picked it up, but you know, for those of you driving, basically, we don't have any papers that say in heart failure patients, which one's better or worse, right? And so that's what they're looking for. Now, this is a retrospective study of ED patients at eight hospitals within one health system from 2018 to 2021. 
they only included ED patients with a history of heart failure, and they had both HEFREF and HEFPEF or whatever, which another thing, total other aside, when did we start calling it HEFREF? When did, when did that? I feel like this happened because like now everybody says it, like the medical students, the janitor is saying, hey, this guy has HEFREF. And I don't know when it happened. I you, went to sleep one day. You know what's even more interesting? I totally agree with you. Every resident says it to me. And I also feel like every patient has it now. <laughs> Maybe it's just because it's like, you know, like nails on a chalkboard yeah, a little yeah. bit when I hear it. So it kind of resonates with yeah. me. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Where'd this hefref thing yeah. come from? And it sounds like you're coughing or something. <laughs> sneeze. It's like a sneeze. It's like he's got a, he's got heart failure and he's got a sneeze. Are you going to test him for COVID or something? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, this is the first time I've, well, it's not the first time, but it's one of the first times where I've really seen it. Like, and in the paper, it's featured prominently. Like, they're like, hefref, hefpef, all over the place. For those of you who also took a nap and woke up and are new to this term, hefref is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction versus hefpef or whatever, which is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Yeah. What we used to call diastolic maybe, dysfunction. Maybe you took some hibernol and you've been <laughs> gone for a while. But, yeah, but everybody knows I do this every month. No, but I'm saying for the hefref <laughs> thing... Oh, I see, see where you're going you with see that. Where I'm going with they this. took the they took the hibernol, and now they wake up in a hefrev world. Yeah. Or if maybe it, you take it because you have hefrev. Like, if you don't, if you don't know what hibernol is, just look it up online. Well, yeah, it's the best. Other flu medicines let you sleep for eight or ten hours. Hibernol lets you sleep through the entire flu season, usually between two and three months. So anyway, these people had history of hefrev or hefpef, but and this is really important, they did not have an acute exacerbation of CHF when they were in the ED. So they weren't showing up drowning in the ED. They just had this on their chart. The exposure variable is which negative chronotropic agent they received, whether it was metoprolol or diltiazem. Those were the two options. The key outcome variables were heart rate less than 110 beats per minute at 30 minutes and adverse events, including, you know, uh, bradycardia, hypotension, and evidence of CHF within six or 24 hours. Okay, so those were the outcome variables. The first one is an efficacy one, and the other ones are like sort of safety variables. All of this was then stratified by whether the patients had baseline HEFREF or HEFPEF, right? Because maybe, you know, one strategy works you know, with one of those versus the other. The problem here with this study, so like you said, we're all good. This is a really good question. We're very interested. The problem here is with the methods. Basically, there just were none. It's just not at all clear who did the chart abstraction, what their training was, whether they were blind to the study hypothesis, where they got the information from the chart, how they handled missing data, how they handled discrepant data. And you can easily imagine that being a big problem when your outcome is something like heart rate less than 110 at 30 minutes. There's very often conflicting things. If at 30 minutes, it was 110, but 35 minutes, it was 120. Does that, you know, what is, how does that feel? CHF definitions were quite challenging. It was very, it left me, you know, really with a lot of uncertainty just based on methods alone. They screened almost 2,600 patients. Over a thousand of them were excluded because they got a second agent within 30 minutes of the initial agent. So they crossed over so quickly that they did that. But that's a really big problem because from a, you know, a clinician perspective, you give an agent and if it doesn't work, 
and you have to give something else within 10 minutes, that's not the way we approach it. And we don't get to say, well, let's wait 30 minutes until the first few agents have been done. Let me give another one. Basically, they took away the intent to treat concept here by discounting and getting rid of such a high fraction that got two agents very early. So again, it creates a weird sort of situation. At the end of the day, despite screening 2,600 patients, they only included 139 patients. 59 got metoprolol, 134 got diltiazem. Somewhat interestingly, the groups ended up very well balanced on observable data, which I'm kind of surprised by in terms of you know their mean age, the proportion with HEFREF versus HEFPEF. They were basically the same across the treatment groups. In terms of outcomes, you know, again, I don't want to belabor it because there's so many methodologic issues, but there was a general trend towards in efficacy favoring diltiazem. The heart rate reductions were more pronounced in the diltiazem group, 33 beats per minute versus 20 beats per minute at 30 and 60 minutes. The proportion with heart rate less than 110 was 55 in the dilt group versus 41 in the metoprolol group. So, you know, a general uh, favoring towards it. I think those were statistically significant. In terms of safety, the rate of bradycardia, hypotension, or CHF exacerbation were not different between the two groups. However, it should be noted that 42% had an increase in oxygen demand in the DILT group compared with 31% in the metoprolol group. It was just not statistically significant. So maybe there's a little bit of a counterbalance there. The results were essentially the same for the subgroup with HEFREF versus HEFPEF. So it wasn't like, you know, there's a big treatment difference between those two groups. Overall, I think this study tends to suggest that DILT is effective and probably safe compared with metoprolol for this more controversial group of patients with rapid response AFib and a history of CHF. The methods are just too spotty to take this as serious evidence. But since there's not a lot of data out there, maybe even none on this particular patient group, I would include it in the database. Now, don't you think, like, if the authors of this paper are listening to this program, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if they are or not, would you suggest to them that they write another paper, including all those people who switched over? Because for me, the, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, that intent to treat part is so important mm-hmm. because if we found out that, for example, you know, every patient who got a beta blocker first their next dose was dilt, like every time. That well, they might... had to convert in 10 minutes. Yeah. That... They actually do report on, of this 139, how many of them crossed over, but mm-hmm. they crossed over later. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying mm-hmm. if we learn that everybody yeah. who got a beta blocker crossed over early and nobody who got dilt crossed over, you know what I mean? Something... Absolutely. I think that that group is probably the most interesting. Well, it's a big group too. And you're right. Absolutely. So I'm a... kind of feeling like there's some, there's some meat more on to the... do. There's still some meat on the bone. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, that that introduces a huge limitation. Now, if they address that limitation, included those patients, you know, it doesn't fix the underlying methodological limitations. It, but I feel like I, I am curious. Yeah. So if they publish that paper within the next two years, you're saying my moratorium's off and I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed I'll to cover, cover it. it. Okay. Your, your moratorium's still on. I will cover I select it. most of the papers, though, so I, I have to think about that ahead of time. No, I'm going to I'm going to do a call out right now and say if you guys publish that paper, I promise I will cover it on EMA. Wow, you're undermining my moratorium uh, abilities. I d- I don't appreciate that. Editor's commentary. This is a very limited retrospective study of patients with a history of CHF but who are not currently having a CHF exacerbation in the ED 
with rapid ventricular response AFib. The results suggest that diltiazem is effective and possibly as safe as metoprolol, but this is far from conclusive because of the methodologic limitations of this study. Abstract number five. Effect of ivermectin versus placebo on time to sustained recovery in outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Neji et al. from JAMA. Ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug which emerged basically in 2020 as a potential repurposed drug for treatment of COVID-19 due to an in vitro study suggesting possible antiviral activity. Although there were some early studies that showed positive in vivo results, so enhancing those in vitro results, there were real issues with heterogeneity between the trials, big issues with quality, and several of them actually were redacted. The largest randomized control trial to date, which was the TOGETHER trial, showed no benefit. This is a study from the ACTIVE-6 group. And ACTIVE stands for Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. That's an excellent acronym, actually, which is an ongoing, fully remote, so it's a decentralized study, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled platform trial investigating repurposed drugs for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. Now, we've covered a few of these active trials yeah, like before. like hydroxychloroquine was one, I think. And it is just so cool. I remember in a prior EMA, I went into a lot of detail about how these active studies work. But basically, the way they're designed is they can just shift in real time. Like if it starts to look like one repurposed drug is not having a lot of benefit and another one looks a little more promising, across all sites, across everything, they can immediately switch and start enrolling more patients in that. The results kind of tend to be like different numbers of patients in the control versus the active treatment arms, but that's because there's so many active treatment arms. So it's just a very cool platform that has allowed us to get some very, very good information quickly about treating COVID-19. At the time of this publication, Active 6 has randomized 1,800 patients from 93 sites in the U.S. to either placebo or ivermectin, 400 micrograms per kilo, for three days. The mean age of patients included was 48 years, about 60% women, and almost half of them had at least two doses of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So we've covered a lot of these where it's like kind of looking at unvaccinated patients and you don't know how it would do with vaccinated. So here was kind of a half and half sample. The primary outcome was time to recovery, which they defined as sort of several days without any symptoms of COVID-19, and which was, cut to the chase, unchanged across arms. 12 days for ivermectin versus 13 days for placebo, but the absolute difference is really measured in a matter of hours. Secondary outcome of hospitalization was the same across groups at 1.2%, and a composite secondary outcome of urgent or emergency care visits, hospitalization, or death, so kind of coming back for anything, like whether it be mild or severe, was also similar across the groups, 3.9% in the ivermectin group versus 3.6% in the placebo group. The final secondary outcome to be assessed are patient-reported outcomes at 90 days via the PROMISE29 questionnaire, and this sort of takes into account 
you know, quality of life and, you know, still feeling short of breath, sort of maybe a proxy for long COVID. But this takes a lot longer to assess because you have to wait, you know, at least three months to contact these people. So they actually save it for a future paper. They're saying, what we have now is good enough to say, no mas, ivermectin. Yeah, we're going to get another JAMA publication out of that next one. I think that's right, which we will cover. So the decentralized enrollment process and the touchless mailed pharmacy medication approach, that's basically what they did here. You know, the package showed up at your door Uh with either a placebo or uh, an active treatment group. That's what they do for everything in this trial. It's so cool. It's very innovative but does lead to the largest potential limitation in that the average time from onset of symptoms to medication or placebo in your hand was almost a week. So that's if someone wants to sort of like chip at this one, that's probably going to be the thing. On a sensitivity analysis, because they did have you know, a reasonable number of patients here, the overall results were maintained when they looked at potential differential treatment effects based on symptom duration, because some people got it really quick. They showed up at the doctor's office yeah, on day it's not zero like and they got my it on recolle- day one. Yeah, my recollection of these things is not that it takes that. They're really good at getting you the drug once you enroll. It's that probably a lot of that is lead time, right? It's Patients lead time, had symptoms but it can take a couple days. of days yeah, as like well to get the, the mail over there. So, but when they did these sensitivity analyses, it didn't seem like there was some difference. It looked like if you got it early in the first two days, sure. still didn't work, still didn't do anything. I'm so sure that's true. I think, you know, you're right. They're probably another JAMA publication out of this one, but ivermectin, it's done. Editor's commentary. This well-done trial from the active group should serve as the final nail in the coffin for ivermectin as a potential repurposed treatment for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 infection. Abstract number six. The use of additional imaging studies after biliary point-of-care ultrasound in the emergency department. This is by Zitek et al., and it's an emergency radiology. I like POCUS cut its teeth on biliary disease, don't you think? POCUS in the ED. But here we are 15 years later still sort of talking about its utility. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, we were residents thinking back, and we got the ultrasound. I think the first time I used it was to do an IJ was probably when I first used Pocus, oh. you know? So it was like a little bit of a procedural fast came oh, pretty I early, did. I too. Mean, if we're going back into the dark ages, when I, I first used it, it was for vaginal bleeding to look for ectopics. Oh, yeah. We used to do that. All the time. We had that room with the four gurneys that faced each other. That's and you just, right. That was not... Yeah, that's what... The, it was an OB ultrasound, the one we had in training. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, for those of you listening who maybe you're new to the program, Mike and I trained together yeah. many moons ago. You know, we... Started there like in early 2000, let's say. Yeah, ish. Uh, and uh, so we, you know, we do have a lot of similar training experiences. And sometimes I black it. I totally yeah. forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, we used to all the time. That's how it started. We, had yeah, the, we right. only had the VAG probe. You're we right. used to use that. Anyway, whatever. POCUS is quick and available at the bedside for providers to make rapid assessments. But of course, providers may have less intense training experience or diligence in obtaining imaging compared to sort of radiology techs which may affect the sensitivity and specificity of this examination. Previous studies have put the sensitivity of ED POCUS for biliary disease like acute cholecystitis at about 80%, though occasionally a report comes through with a sensitivity as low as around 65%. The authors here conduct a single system center chart review with some nice methodologic additions to clarify how the test characteristics of POCUS fair compared with radiology ultrasound and we'll leave it at that. They also looked at sort of CT and HIDA scan, but 
Anyway, it's actually a pretty reasonable attempt. They use fair, but not pristine chart review methodologies and generally explain their methodology really well. So even though there's some questions about whether people were blinded or, or whatnot, they detail it in, in a good amount so that at least I think you could replicate their findings. They look at all the patients in their hospital system between 2018 and 2021, so it's quite modern study, who had one, a POCUS scan for biliary disease recorded into their QPath system. And that's very important because QPath is the sort of, is one of the systems that captures images, uploads them for posterity so that they can be, you know, uh, have a, a QA process and all that kind of stuff. And it does make one wonder if all the images, every time a biliary scan was done, actually got uploaded into QPath. Because I know at our system where we use QPath, I would say it's probably about 20% of scans. No, get- no. I think it's 20% of attending scans. I think the residents do a pretty good job. I don't think so. Not, not. I think junior residents do. I'll get into it a little bit more. But you're right about the attending thing for sure. So they had to have that uploaded into QPath. And two, they had to have some confirmatory study done. And what they use, say is confirmatory, it could have been a radiology ultrasound, or it could have been a CT scan, or it could have been a HIDA scan, or it could have been a surgery, right? And so they sort of give them escalating importance, right? So if someone had surgery, that was the gold standard. If they didn't have it, then it was a HIDA scan. If they didn't have it, then it was the radiology ultrasound. So it's kind of interesting. POCUS was considered positive for gallstones if gallstones were noted in the interpretation, right? And positive for cholecystitis if acute or chronic cholecystitis was noted in the interpretation. They did not require that POCUS have gallbladder wall thickening, sonomurphies, or pericholecystic fluid to be positive, just that the interpretation was positive. Similarly, the confirmatory tests were based on interpretation, not the technical finding of how thick the gallbladder wall was and stuff. So the radiology ultrasound said this is consistent with cholecystitis. They called it cholecystitis. They found 664 patients that had biliary pocus over the three-year study period. 300 were excluded because they never had a confirmatory test or not within 30 days of follow-up period. The patients who did not have a confirmatory study were younger and thinner than those that did. Overall, this suggests to me that the group that got POCUS entered into the QPath and got a confirmatory test were likely more complicated than average. And so that probably has some effect at sort of generally decreasing the test characteristics of POCUS compared to how it would be truly in the wild. In terms of who did the scans, 62% of them were done by residents. 30% of them were done by ED ultrasound attendings, and a piddly 8% were done by regular ED attendings. So you say piddly, I'm like, not bad, guys. And I think that that likely reflects two things. One, ED attendings are less likely to do the scan in the first place, but they're probably way less likely to enter it into the QPath system. You know how to use QPath. I do. I do. But I I have learned it like four different times. I'm the same. Yeah. yeah. And I'll do it like twice. Yeah. I have good retention for like a little bit of time and then it's gone again. It's gone. Right but now I'm in an off cycle. Yeah, so am I. I agree okay. with that. I agree with that. If you asked me to do it right now, I think I could get it done, but it wouldn't be very pretty. If life depended on it. If life depended on it, I would a get a resident. <laughs> next month. Overall, POCUS was extraordinarily sensitive and specific for gallstones compared to the confirmatory test. 97% sensitive and 99% specific. On the other hand, it was only 83% sensitive for cholecystitis, but did maintain that very high specificity at uh, 98%. 
However, and this is really important, it compared favorably to the sensitivity of radiology ultrasound. So Hocus was, you know, 83% sensitive. Radiology ultrasound in this cohort was only 70% sensitive. And, you know, it's a little confusing how they did all this stuff. And it had to do with like different levels of what the gold standard was, but they do a nice job of explaining it. So just, you got to just trust me on this one. Is, I think is it's part right. of that because the radiologists got the harder cases, like the more difficult technical cases to begin with in, right? Well, there, there might be an element of that because in order for the radiology ultrasound to have a gold standard to compare against, they had to have right. yet another scan, right. which is like, you know, the surgery versus a HIDA scan. Yeah, got it. So they might, you know, there might be discrepancy, if you will. So, and that's, and they go into that. They say, well, okay, there were times when the two were discrepant and there was an adjudicator, like a, a surgical pathology report. And in those cases, eight out of nine of the times, the POCUS was correct and the radiology ultrasound was wrong. And that's why the sensitivity of the radiology ultrasound is lower than the other one. Now, you know, how could that be, right? It's just pictures. How could ours be better than the radiology ultrasound? And I think that that has to do with the way they define a positive ultrasound, right? They define it according to the POCUS provider's interpretation. And you and I both know that you go in, there's somebody, you're like, this dude has cholecystitis, you know, before you put the ultrasound on, then you put the ultrasound on, you see a gallstone and you see what you want to see. And then there's maybe something, any little thing. You're like, hell yeah, that's cool. And you've seen the labs, the white count's 22,000 and the LFTs are elevated. You're like, this is the cholecystitis. So you put acute cholecystitis. The radiologist looking at the cold images in isolation may be like, I can't tell. This looks like biliary colic or whatever. So I think that, you know, probably there's a little bit of incorporation of the clinical findings into the clinical interpretation from us compared to the radiologist, which is a little bit unfair. You know, it's a little unfair for comparing images to images, but it's also the way the world works. So I, I think it's okay. Overall, this data is consistent with previous studies showing that ultrasound or POCUS ultrasound, actually both, are not perfect for the detection of cholecystitis. Usually, regardless of whether it's POCUS or radiology ultrasound, the sensitivity is reported out around 80%, but with very high specificity. On the other hand, ultrasound, again, whether POCUS or radiology ultrasound, is extraordinarily sensitive and specific for gallstones. So from my perspective, if you're doing a POCUS and you get good images and there are no gallstones, there's rarely a reason to get a radiology ultrasound to evaluate for cholecystitis. You may want to do something to evaluate for some other reason for right upper quadrant pain, but not for cholecystitis. If gallstones are present, but there are no other findings of cholecystitis, you should just be aware of this, you know, limited sensitivity for cholecystitis and, you know, consider additional testing. Although, frankly, the additional testing maybe shouldn't be radiology ultrasound because it's about the same. There are a lot of limitations in the study. The main ones have to do with what we talked about already. Who, you know, what studies got entered into QPath, right? Were these extra hard studies or whatever, which means that the sensitivity is probably biased down. On the other hand, it's quite possible that the patients that got entered into QPath were resident cases who were trying to get their numbers up so that they could, you know, get credentialed or ED ultrasound attendings who really liked doing it. So they were including a lot of scans in and that could bias it in the opposite direction, make the cohort a little bit easier than, than a general cohort. So overall, there, it's a little unclear whether it's, you know, these estimates are likely to be biased a little bit down or a little bit up, but they're mostly consistent with the rest of the literature. So I think we can take them at their face value. 
Edit this commentary. This is a retrospective single system chart review of the test characteristics of biliary pocus for the detection of gallstones or cholecystitis. The methods are decent, but still leave considerable possibilities for biased results. Still, the key finding that pocus is extremely sensitive and specific for gallstones and about 80% sensitive for cholecystitis is largely consistent with other studies on this topic. Abstract number seven, validation and comparison of the PCARN rule, step-by-step approach, and lab score for predicting serious and invasive bacterial infections in young febrile infants. This is by Sutaman et al. from the Annals of the Academy of Medicine, Singapore. So the workup and management of fever in infants is challenging, largely because serious bacterial infections are really bad and should not be missed, but the incidence of these infections is declining and really on the sharp decline. There are several rule sets out there to help us, and one of the more commonly used ones is the PCARN, sort of infant fever rule, saying that febrile infants less than 60 days of age with a normal UA and falling in some specific cut points for ANC and procalcitonin are at low risk of serious bacterial infection. This is essentially an external validation of several rule sets, including PCARN, step-by-step, and lab score, which is basically one that is just a CRP, a procalcitonin, and a UA. And if all those are negative, you're probably not all that sick. And they also look at just single biomarkers, the value of like several different biomarkers. It's a prospective observational study from KK Women's and Children's Hospital in Singapore where local policy dictates, this is kind of interesting, that all febrile infants, whether you're well-appearing, ill-appearing, zero to 90 days, get admitted to the hospital. You come in there with a fever, you're being admitted if you're less than three months old. Of 468 patients, almost half, unfortunately, were excluded from their analysis, most of them because of missing lab values and missing medical We admit them, but we don't do anything else. Yeah, which left... 258 infants with a median age of 47 days. In terms of development of SBI and IBI, 29% had UTIs, 1.2% had bacteremia, and one infant, or 0.4%, had bacterial meningitis. They say that step-by-step actually had the best test characteristics with a sensitivity of 97.7%, but the specificity was a little low at 16%. In their sample, PCARN had a sensitivity of 88.4% and a specificity of 36.6%. None of the single lab scores worked great, but ANC greater than 4.9 was the best with a sensitivity of 80.2%. It does appear to me, based on the read of this paper, that their sort of unstated goal was just to find a single biomarker that could do the job of a more complicated rule. Like if in all these kids, we could just send a procalcitonin, it was negative. And there wouldn't be a rule if that was the case. Right. (laughs) The guys who derived the rule would have figured that out. Because they spend a lot of the discussion describing the test characteristics of every single lab test at different cutoffs with, you know, AOC curves and all this stuff. But the truth is... AOC curves? I don't think there's an AOC curve. AUC. AOC is a politician. This is wrong. Very good point. So 
area under the curve. Thing. Not over the curve. Not, well, it could be over. That's the flip side <laughs> I guess of it. It's one minus the well, area that's why over the, the curve. That's why the methods were not that good. So the truth is they just don't have enough cases really of invasive bacterial infections to even support all their super complicated statistical looks at this thing. Overall, they did do a pretty nice job explaining how they collected and defined each variable, even trying to standardize what was ill-appearing. They sort of have some criteria, what they say, looking for specific words that define ill-appearing, but they're limited by their sample size and very large number of excluded patients with, as Mike alluded to before, no description of how they compared to the included patients in terms of their illness and things like that. So, They provide a pretty interesting discussion on why all the rules didn't work as well in their validation, like all of them, step-by-step, PCON, they didn't, you know, it's supposed to be better than what they found. And they say the reason is that in Singapore, if you have a less than three-month-old with a fever, you're sort of told to get them in right away, like bring them right to the ER. Don't, you know, pass go, don't collect $200, just get in there. And the caveat with all those rules is it does take a little time for like the procalcitonin, ANC and stuff to be elevated. So they say that's why it didn't work that well. In truth, I think they were looking for something that they just couldn't quite put their finger on in this paper. So I wouldn't even call it a great validation of the rules that we already have. Editor's commentary. In this external validation of several commonly used infant fever guidelines, the authors found that step-by-step worked the best, but the strength of their conclusion is limited by a small sample size of both overall kids and sick kids. They further attempt to find one lab test or some combination of lab tests that could do the job by itself, but this effort falls flat. Pediatric fever guidelines can and do safely prevent unnecessary workups. Learn at least one and incorporate it into your practice if you have not already done so. If a new one gets developed that's worth knowing about, rest assured, we will cover it for you here. Abstract number eight, lactate as a screening tool for critical illness in pediatric emergency department. This is by Nygaard et al. and it's in pediatric emergency care. This is a messy paper, but I like the topic and the top line findings, so I concluded it anyway. So the surviving sepsis campaign made serum lactate a hallmark of bundled care compliance. Uh, high lactate is associated with high risks of bad outcomes in septic patients, and so it must be checked, and so it must be treated, and so it must be rechecked, and so it must be retreated, blah, blah, blah. And be trended. And, and, and trended, and yes, it's very, very important. And the AOC and the AUC must be determined. Yeah, ARC, <laughs> put them all on there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> yeah. Back up, buddy. Back up. The area to the right of the curve. Yeah. You don't know that one? The ALC? Come on, uh, dude. I'm teaching you some stats here. It's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for you. So- this is already pretty like of pretty dubious value, but what's worse is that the serum lactate has found itself getting added to like routine labs, not just patients that have sepsis and all that kind of stuff, to screen for critical illness, right? Like, oh, this, this guy who came in with an ankle sprain is lactate's four. Maybe we have to treat, retreat, do all that kind of get blood cultures, all that kind of stuff. And what's even worse, according to Dr. Nygaard et al., is that in children it's being used to screen for you know, critical illness in patients who aren't critically ill. And it's not validated basically even in the sepsis environment in children. So it's, they're like, they don't like it. They've had enough. The authors clearly think this is crazy to screen children with lactate. So they conduct a retrospective review 
to determine the association between serum lactate level and the need for acute resuscitation in children at a single pediatric ED in Copenhagen. So children presenting to this ED in 2019 and 2020 were included if they had a serum lactate drawn as part of their initial labs, which they kind of implies screening, you know, but that's a little sketchy. Kids with cyanotic heart disease, inborn errors of metabolism were excluded because those are known to cause elevated baseline serum lactate. The key outcome was this need for acute resuscitation, which they defined as getting a fluid bolus of at least 20 cc's per kilo, right? Getting supplemental oxygen to keep the SATs over 90% or needing to be admitted to the PICU, all right? So that's a pretty loosey-goosey definition of acute resuscitation as far as I'm concerned. A lot of kids, I'm sure, get 20 cc per kilo bolus that don't really need to be resuscitated per se. A total of 1,300 children met the entry criteria. 44% had infectious symptoms, 13 respiratory, 10% were dehydrated, and 40% had some other non-febrile illness. Of that 1,355, only 14 needed acute resuscitation. And that that acute resuscitation pretty loosely defined. There were no statistical differences in serum lactate level between those who did and did not require acute resuscitation. The mean levels were 1.6 and 1.7, respectively, in the two groups. 30% of the children, so 400 kids, had a lactate over 2. 13% had a lactate over 2.5. So, this is just showing that even though none of these kids needed resuscitation, a lot of them had elevated lactate that probably caused a lot of issues in terms of like dealing with that, that elevated value. Age and technical variations accounted for some of the elevated lactate. So really young kids had a higher incidence of elevated lactates, like kids under you know three months. And then also if you got a heel stick as opposed to a venous sample, that increased the lactate level considerably. Interestingly, they looked specifically at children who received beta agonist therapy. So that 13% that had respiratory got some beta agonists, and there the lactate levels were through the roof, right? So the median lactate of anybody getting a beta agonist was 2.6, so into that critical illness, and the 95th percentile of that was over five. So kids getting beta agonists, even though they otherwise didn't need you know, acute resuscitation, they didn't need supplemental oxygen to keep their SATs up or anything like that, very often had elevated lactates. They present figures showing the distribution of serum lactate for those who needed resuscitation and those who don't. And they're like, just sit right on top of each other. It's not like there's a little tail here or a median or a mode or anything like that. They just sit right on top. It was pretty convincing graphical evidence that there's no difference in the lactate levels between these two populations. Now, listen, there's a lot of problems with this paper. It's single center. There's basically, the methods are not strong. The definition of needing acute resuscitation is not validated. We don't know really why lactate was measured in most of those cases. They say it's screening, but we don't really know why. But frankly, I think these findings are most likely biased in favor of finding a relationship between lactate and resuscitation because the treating clinicians likely incorporated the lactate value into their decision of whether or not to give someone fluid or, you know, whatever, admit them to the PICU. And if they were on the fence and they're sitting there with a kid with a lactate of three or four, they probably would have. And even with that pretty evident bias, there was no evidence that lactate was higher in the kids that required acute resuscitation. So 
I think overall, this doesn't rule out the possibility that lactate could have a role in a very specific subset of kids with sepsis or trauma or something like that, but it clearly suggests it shouldn't be used as a screening tool for all comers. Editor's commentary. According to this limited chart review study, serum lactate does not seem to differentiate between children presenting to the pediatric ED who require resuscitation and those who do not. Abstract number nine, utility of serum lactate on differential diagnosis of seizure-like activity, a systematic review and meta-analysis, and this is by Patel et al. from the journal Seizure. And this is part two of our Can Lactate Be Used to Differentiate Something from from Something? So transient loss of consciousness is a pretty common presentation in the ED with a really wide differential and oftentimes ends up with us pursuing lots of different things. We have a really broad diagnostic approach when someone's like, I don't know. I I woke up Uh, and there I was. Someone was spraying water on my face. Mm -hmm. So history is very crucial in narrowing down the diagnosis, but sometimes you just don't have it. They just say, I have no idea what happened to me. I don't remember. There were no witnesses around. Or they're still altered a little bit. So they, you know, they really can't focus on the question that you're asking. So I think this varies quite a bit depending on where you work, but certainly where Mike and I work at county, a lot of times we end up asking, do you think this was a seizure or was this a syncopal event? Right. right? We kind of like hone in on those two things. Yes, because one gets a head scan and one doesn't. Right. And one, you know, and so I think that a lot of providers, certainly where we work, this like kind of look to this lactate to see if there's an answer. They're like, oh, lactate was five. They probably had a seizure, you know, and they kind of like look at even if maybe the history of seizure disorder or something. But is that okay? Does that really have any value to do that? There have been several studies evaluating the value of serum lactate in the ED in a variety of clinical conditions. Mike just sort of covered one of them. And in this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors assessed the diagnostic value of serum lactate in differentiating seizures from other causes of transient loss of consciousness in the ED, not just syncope. They identified eight studies that met their inclusion criteria of reporting lactate levels in less than three hours after the loss of consciousness event. Five were retrospective studies, three were observational prospective studies, no trials. Of the 1,300-ish patients included in their sample, in their meta-analysis, about 900 had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And in sum, the serum lactate levels from patients who had the generalized tonic-clonic seizure were significantly higher than those who had transient loss of consciousness from some other cause, a mean difference of 5 millimoles per liter. So, Big difference. They That's were a, a lot huge higher difference in yeah. the generalized tonic clonic. Yeah. They provide other comparisons as well between different types of seizures, like non-generalized, like an obsolete seizure or something like that, and lactate levels. But the numbers there are really too small to put any faith, I think, in their findings, other than saying, generally speaking, if you look at their tables, patients with a generalized tonic clonic seizure had much higher levels of lactate than people with other seizure types. So well, that's not good shaking. because I really don't understand how your lactate that level That certainly makes sense. With an right. absence seizure. And I think that for me, I kind of, like as you said, five is a big difference. I kind of want to believe, but I have some issues, unfortunately, with this meta-analysis. 
Some of them are that there was a big amount of heterogeneity between the included studies that were there. Those eight studies looked really different when you look at the table. And the meta-analysis was not a patient-level meta-analysis. So what they did was they took the median values from the studies and then kind of grouped those together. So it's not like they had individual patient-level data and then generated their own new statistical things. They just took the medians, like eight of them or whatever, some less than eight in some cases. So that's not the most pristine way, I think, to do a meta-analysis. Also, the fact that about two-thirds of the patients with transient loss of consciousness in their sample ended up having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And that is way, way, way too high. Mm -hmm. And what that says to me is that the patients we're actually looking here, the full cohort, is not really representative of patients who came in of like all comers with transient loss of consciousness. Look like they probably suspected a generalized tonic-clonic seizure in these patients, and that's how they got enrolled in these parent studies. And I think that it'd be actually kind of nice if they said that, if they said, hey, if you're thinking that it might be a seizure, but you're just not 100% sure, in that cohort, this lactate seems to make a big difference. But they sort of frame the discussion and the paper as being able to differentiate it in all comers. And I think that framing really makes the findings of this paper a little bit hard to believe. Commentary. In this meta-analysis, the authors attempt to assess the diagnostic value of serum lactate in differentiating seizures from other cause of transient loss of consciousness in the emergency department, and although they conclude that it can differentiate generalized tonic-clonic seizure from other types of loss of consciousness, I think the magnitude of their conclusion is overstated due to issues with the identification and analytic strategies. If you have a patient with a suspected generalized tonic-clonic seizure and the lactate is high, you're probably right, but it might also be something else. So you can't really hang your hat on that. Quick take. Abstract number 10, this is a quick take. Apixaban versus rivaroxaban in patients with atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease, a population-based study. This is by DeWass et al., and it's in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So this is one of those papers that's either a quick take or a 30-minute lesson in econometric analysis. I've opted for the quick take. Yay! Uh, remember when there was warfarin? Remember that? I Barely. It's, yeah, it's, like, it's all Zabans nowadays. Specifically, apixaban and rivaroxaban. And generally, I don't think providers think of them very differently. They're like, they came out at the same time. They do the same stuff. They have the same indications. And so, you know, it is what it is. However, we've seen a couple observational papers pop up in the past year or so suggesting that one is actually better than the other. This is another paper like that. This time, the authors look at the incidence of systemic embolism, so basically stroke, and clinical bleeding in patients with valvular heart disease and atrial fibrillation who were treated with either rivaroxaban or apixaban. Basically, they started the treatment on one of these drugs. How often did they get those things in the one year following treatment? They use the Optum data set, which is this huge administrative data set and it has some clinical features of insured patients in the United States. We're talking about tens of millions of people are included in this Optum data set. They identified 34,000 people with new prescriptions for one of these medications who also had valvular AFib. They ended up with about 10,000 people who received apixaban and 10,000 matched people 
who received rivaroxaban. They were matched by propensity score. The mean age of the cohort was 76, and most of them had mitral valve disease. What'd they find? And this is consistent with the other paper. Apixaban was associated with lower rates of embolism and lower rates of bleeding. Specifically, the risk of stroke was nine per thousand patient years in the rivaroxaban group compared with 5.2 in the apixaban group. So almost half. For bleeding, it was 28 episodes per thousand years in the rivaroxaban group versus 14 in apixaban. So half. There was actually no difference in mortality, but in terms of overall bleeding rates, rivaroxaban did not do as well as apixaban. The authors did a variety of sensitivity checks on this with different definitions and different modeling strategies, and it all looked the same. Always apixaban, half as much embolism, half as much bleeding. Basically, this is now the third large observational study suggesting that apixaban is safer and more effective than rivaroxaban, which is kind of surprising. I would have thought that they'd be different and one would have lower embolism rates, but maybe higher. It's just a more, it just thins your blood more right? But this is in both directions. It's better. All three of them have showed the same thing. Now, of course, this isn't a trial. And, you know, usually when you see observational data, you think, oh, there could be selection bias and all this kind of stuff that the apixaban people for were, you know, the doctors were selecting the lower risk or the whatever patients for apixaban therapy as opposed to rivaroxaban therapy. But why would they do that? Nobody had any idea that there might be a difference between the two. So it's, it's hard to understand how this might not be a true finding. So for me, this is enough. And I've already started doing this. I've moved to apixaban from rivaroxaban as my go-to until new trial data comes out that suggests otherwise. It should be noted there is a trial that's enrolling and it's going to be the first one that directly compares rivaroxaban with apixaban in a randomized prospective manner. But enrollment doesn't end on that trial for like another year. And then it's going to, you know, it takes a year or two to get the end results, another year or two to publish it. So we probably won't see those findings until 2025 or 2026. You know, I've been I've been wondering where that eloquist hat and t-shirt that you're <laughs> yeah. wearing came what? from. I'm yeah. going to have to talk to Ken and Swami about The hat? What about my new interest. car? <laughs> Is that your eloquist wagon out there? <laughs> the eloquist mobile? No, I do not have any conflict of interest, nor did the authors in any of these three papers, for what it's worth. Editor's Commentary. This is yet another large observational study at relatively low risk for confounding by indication, again showing that apixaban is associated with lower risk of embolic phenomena and lower risk of bleeding compared with rivaroxaban. The data are sufficiently compelling to justify preferring apixaban until randomized trial data become available. Abstract number 11. Diagnostic Accuracy of a Bacterial and Viral Biomarker Point-of-Care Test in the Outpatient Setting. This is by Shapiro et al. from JAMA Network Open. So acute respiratory infections are the most common cause of infectious illness, and even though lots of them are viral, clinicians tend to prescribe antibiotics maybe a little bit more liberally than they should in order to avoid missing a bacterial infection that could progress to serious infection or sepsis. In fact, it's estimated that about half of prescriptions for acute respiratory infections actually end up being unnecessary. The FEBRI-DX bacterial and viral test 
is a finger stick point of care immunoassay designed to detect and differentiate bacterial from viral associated host immune responses in patients by measuring a viral associated protein, something called myxovirus resistance protein A and CRP, and results in about 10 minutes. So it's a finger stick, she's just a finger stick, pull a little drop of blood on there, and there's kind of two wells, one for this viral biomarker and one for CRP. So if the viral biomarker lights up and the CRP doesn't, then you're like, this is a virus. That's right. And if the CRP lights, lights up, up and the viral doesn't, then you say it's bacterial. And if neither lights up or both do, you say it's indeterminate. That, that's kind of how it works. This is a prospective blinded multicenter observational study of this bacterial viral test device performance in identifying bacterial and viral etiology of infection from nine EDs, six urgent care clinics, and five primary care clinics in the U.S. They enrolled patients as young as one-year-old with fever, suspected acute respiratory infection, and any of the following symptoms, rhinorrhea, congestion, sore throat, cough, hoarseness, or shortness of breath. And they enrolled control patients who had none of those symptoms and no suspicion for an acute respiratory infection. All patients had blood, oral, and nasal pharyngeal samples sent for multiplex PCR for either viral or bacterial identification as a gold standard. Among just under 500 patients with a final diagnosis, 14.7% were classified as having a bacterial response, 60% classified as having a viral response, and the rest were negative, as detected by their reference standard. The test performed pretty well. It had the sensitivity of 93% and a specificity of 88% and a negative predictive value of 99% for bacterial infections. It had a sensitivity of 70%, a specificity of 88%, and a positive predictive value of 90% for viral infections. In the control group, the test was negative in about 99% of cases and should be negative in all of them, but three of them had, uh, so it's positive in three and in a few, I can't actually, didn't say the exact number, but in three of them, they had a positive gold standard viral or bacterial test result. So it was like, they had no symptoms of anything. They sent stuff off to the lab and ended up having flu, something yeah. like that. So this is not a consecutive sample of patients. And there are some conflicts of interest in the disclosures. Yeah, it sounds like a manufacturer-sponsored study. It's not, surprisingly, Really? Though. Yeah, th their conflict of interest was actually with another maker. It's Inflamatics, where we actually were an Inflamatics enrollment site. At USC, we actually enrolled patients in a study very similar to this, looking at febrile patients, trying to figure out if it was bacterial or virus. And there's no comparison against straight clinician judgment, yeah, of course, right? which the is the key, issue. right? Is this really better than we are or not because now they do they do they do say like well they look at the patients and say these patients got antibiotics and so they're like if you'd followed the test we would have prevented these antibiotic prescriptions but that doesn't mean that the treating provider didn't actually think it was viral at the right. core of it they might have thought like oh it's viral but it's kind of a high-risk person they're, right they're immunocompromised they're, de they're demanding antibiotics yeah. i'm gonna give yeah. it so they use that kind of as a proxy saying it would have changed antibiotics actually yeah. a little bit in both directions, but there's not that comparison against, did you think it was a bacteria or a well, virus? Well, we've, we've seen those recent studies in PEDS where 
when they use those viral panels, which, sh- you know, they pop up positive all the time. And they still give antibiotics. And, they, and it doesn't matter whether you yeah. use the viral panel or not. They don't give a lot of antibiotics, but, you know, this reflects, like you said, there are people come in with five days of high fever. You know, your kid comes in five days or adult comes in ca- hacking up a lung. I mean, you know, uh, I want to be a purist as much as anybody, but there's a good chance if they're febrile for five they're days, home with they're going home with antibiotics, even if your little swab says is, influ- you know, whatever, para-influenza virus. Yeah, I agree. I think what's most compelling about this paper is the magnitude of the problem is huge, right? We're giving a lot of unnecessary antibiotics for respiratory infections. We can all agree on that. I think it's very cool that there are groups, researchers, industry and stuff working on a real-time solution that could help us in the clinical areas. Editor's commentary. In this study, the authors evaluate the accuracy and sensitivity of a point-of-care fingerstick test to differentiate between viral and bacterial etiologies among patients with suspected acute respiratory infections and found it did meet their pre-specified criteria for successful detection of bacteria and viral host immune responses. If replicated in other populations by other groups of researchers, tests like this one or others similar to it, this could actually have an impact on the massive problem of antibiotic overprescribing for patients with acute respiratory infections in outpatient settings. Abstract number 12, evaluation of the hemoptysis item in clinical decision rules for the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism in the emergency department. This is by Banalier et al., and it's in academic emergency medicine. So we've all been taught, and I think we all think we know, that hemoptysis is a serious symptom associated with PE. It's been incorporated to most or a lot of the decision aids for PE, including the PERC rule, the year strategy, and the sort of PEG-ED strategy. But it turns out the literature supporting hemoptysis' inclusion into these is much less convincing than one might have thought, and there's been people questioning how sensitive and specific this symptom is, particularly since the prevalence of PE among people getting worked up for PE has dropped so dramatically over the last couple of decades. So the authors here look at pre-existing prospective cohort data to determine what would happen to the failure rate of PERC years and PEG-ED if you just dropped hemoptysis from them. The data comes from two large cohort studies conducted in France and Belgium, and they were called the PROPER study and the PERCEPIC study, and they were used to validate a PERC-based strategy, but they had the elements of the others. To be included, patients had to have, and this is very important, a low pretest probability of PE as assessed by unstructured clinical judgment. Okay, so these are not high-risk PE people in the cohort overall. Clinical data was obtained by the research time in, in, like, as I said, in a prospective real-time manner. The key outcome of interest was the incidence of missed PE or the failure rate at 90 days. People who died all had their records reviewed to determine if the death could have been due to a PE, and there's a whole section on how they adjudicated that. It's very strong research methodology. They had about 3,000 total subjects enrolled, of whom follow-up data was available for almost all of them, 98%. At three months total, 87 PEs were diagnosed. Those weren't misses. That's how many out of the whole cohort were diagnosed by three months. Most of them were diagnosed in the ED at the initial one. So that results, that's about 3%. Of 
84 patients, there were only 84 patients that had hemoptysis as a symptom. Of those, 8% had a PE. So that's a lot higher than the 3% overall that had a PE. So that does suggest right off the bat that the incidence of PE is a bit higher in patients who have hemoptysis. However, when hemoptysis was removed from the various rules, the incidence of missed PE or that failure rate basically didn't change. For example, removing hemoptysis from the PERC rule would have resulted in one more missed PE. So the overall failure rate of the PERC strategy would have changed from 0.45%, way less than 1%, to 0.48%. For years, there was no change at all in the miss rate. And for the PEGI-D strategy, the failure rate went from 0.57 to 0.62%. So essentially, no change in these miss rates, suggesting you could successfully drop hemoptysis from them and not have a higher miss rate. On the other hand, almost no CT scans would have been saved either because so few people have hemoptysis as a symptom. The authors say that only six workups could have been avoided using a PERC strategy minus the hemoptysis as um, you know, one of the criteria. Maybe a few more with the other strategies, but not enough to move the needle. In fact, the authors then sort of backtrack, it's not really backtracking, but they then go on to say that, you know, hemoptysis is kind of a serious symptom anyway, right? If somebody has serious hemoptysis, you're probably going to want to get a CT to see what's causing the hemoptysis, even if it's not a PE, you want to see if that tumor is eroding into something. So, you know, even that number six might be a little inflated, right? Because you, you probably scan them anyway. So what to make out of all of this? Probably not a lot at the end of the day. It's a study I'm probably going to keep in the back of my mind for when I see a well-appearing patient who's been hacking a couple days, then produces a few streaks of blood. You know, you'll always think of PE, right? I mean, you're hacking and you got some blood in there. Think of, of PE. But, you know, if you're around an eager resident, they might say, hey, this guy has hemoptysis. I tried to perk him out and it didn't work or whatever. Shouldn't I get a D-dimer? And I always do they plug it into MD calc. And I'm always like, no, no, that's crazy. Don't do that. And they say, but I plugged it into MD calc and it says this or whatever. And now you've got just a little bit of evidence to back you up. If you're like, this is not a PE, I'm not going to worry about it. If this small streaking of hemoptysis is not a big deal. And there's a little bit of evidence that supports that and validates sort of ignoring that criteria on otherwise super low risk patients. Editist commentary. This is a nicely done secondary analysis of prospectively collected data on patients undergoing evaluation for PE. The findings suggest that the clinical symptom of hemoptysis does not contribute significantly to the diagnostic performance of the PERC rule, years criteria, or PEG-ED strategy, and can probably safely be dropped. On the other hand, dropping it will not result in substantial avoidance of D-dimer or advanced imaging. Abstract number 13. Effect of cefepime N-metazobactam versus piperacillin tazobactam on clinical cure and microbiological eradication in patients with complicated urinary tract infection or acute pyelonephritis, a randomized clinical trial. This is by K et al. from JAMA. In all of our clinical practices, we're seeing an increasing prevalence of extended-spectrum beta-lactamases, which cause resistance to most beta-lactams except carbapenems. And this is changing the way that we treat complicated urinary tract infections. So there is an antibiotic out there, 
whose name is N-metazobactam. You may know it formerly as AAI-101. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, AAI-101. It's like it's Prince, like, you know, yeah, from a symbol like, to yeah. all he went. Except he was reverse. Yeah. This is reverse Prince antibiotic. Got so it. So what is this thing? It's a novel beta-lactamase inhibitor that restores the activity of cefepime against beta-lactamase-producing gram-negative pathogens in vitro. So this trial, I'm going to give you the name, and you have to try to guess the acronym because you'll never get it. And it's the longest name of a trial of all time. It has a as the first word. It's a phase three randomized double-blind multi-center study to evaluate the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of cefepime AAI-101 compared to piptazo in the treatment of complicated urinary tract infections, including acute pyelonephritis in adults. Uh, the PP study. <laughs> the Allium study. <laughs> okay, so I read that, and I know we sometimes joke about these acronyms, but I was also like, you went to all that effort- And had a lame one on top to, of it? To make a name that I don't know what it is. <laughs> A Liam. So then, yeah, but you know, there's like, there's somebody out there's like, how do you not know a Liam, the Greek god well, of? So I'm like, I don't want to get accused by the listeners of not sounding um, ignorant out okay. here. So I looked up a Liam. I'm like, is that even a real word or is that somebody's name or something? It is a word, and it is. I don't know if this is what they are referring to, but this is what I could find on it the means, old interweb. It means. Effect of cefepine and no. tamazobactam. It is a flowering plant, the allium, with some herbs that come out of it that you've probably heard of. Garlic, shallots, among some others. Those are when you look at sort of the, the, the name of the, the phylum tree, <laughs> they are of the allium type. So this stuff smells like garlic, is what you're saying. <laughs> I don't know. It's like when you go through Gilroy, you're like, that's centesimodabactam. But next time, now you could say, smells like we got some allium flowers <laughs> around here and sound either really smart or really annoying. Yeah. So basically what they did here was they took adults with complicated UTIs and randomized them to receive either cefepime 2 grams and N-metazobactam, 0.5 grams, 520 of those patients, or piptazo, 521 of those patients, for seven days as a minimum, but up to 14 days if needed, as decided by the treating clinicians. The primary outcome was a clinical cure, but that was only half of it. You also had to have microbiologic eradication by urine culture. So you had to have both. And this occurred in about 80% of the patients in the new group versus 60% of the piptazo group for a between-group difference, an exact number of 21.2%. Of note, there was no significant difference between the clinical cure rate in the two groups, which was 92.5% versus 88.9%. Adverse event rates were actually pretty high in both groups, at 50% versus 44%, although both groups, most of them, were mild to moderate 
categorize. And usually those adverse events in studies like this are like, they got sick, right? It's not like, it's not like allergy. Usually they give all the anaphylaxis. There's like very close to round down to zero. Most were pretty mild. Right. The things that look like an actual consequence of the antibiotic, as opposed to something that's like the disease is just causes people to get sick and have hypotension. I think you're right. And so this is a pretty straightforward study. There's some more nuances, but I don't think it's all too relevant to people listening to this program. But it does have some significant limitations, including the questionable real-world value of their primary endpoint, right? Because clinical cure was the same. And the real-world applicability of a medication that requires one week of an IV infusion. So there was no oral step-down therapy here. It's like they were in the hospital getting IV antibiotics. For Now, they could be sent home on a pick, I guess, and getting you know antibiotics that way. But that's just not how we really think about most of these, like kind of a little bit of a soft called pilo. Almost all the patients were white. So the authors do say this needs to be replicated in other, you know, other patient populations. And 80% of the patients did not end up having an ESBL pathogen on their final culture. Oh. So, you know... So they were at risk for ESBL. They were at risk for ESBL, but most of them actually didn't have it. So there are some limitations here, but it's a new antibiotic and complicated urinary tract infection is something we've been talking about a little bit more is recently this thing available? in clinical areas. Uh, I think this is part of their phase three FDA approval process. Oh, yeah. That's what you said is part of the title. Yeah. That's the the L in a Liam, phase three. (laughs) Hilarious. So not yet. Stand by. Editor's commentary. The authors report a non-inferiority of cefepime N-metazobactam compared with piptazo for treating patients with suspected complicated urinary tract infections. The main reasons for including this paper is to let you all know about a novel antibiotic that's all over the news right now and to stress the importance of assessing the clinical meaningfulness of reported outcomes when reading studies such as this. Interesting that the whole point of the drug is to treat ESBL patients and those actually made up less than 20% of cases in this sample. Abstract number 14, effect of paroxetine or catiapine combined with oxycodone versus oxycodone alone on ventilation during hypercapnia, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Florian et al., and this is in JAMA. I'm so going to th- just say off the bat, nice job getting this. some tough words up there. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't get through it at all during our article selection process. I was working on my enunciation. Yeah, unique <laughs> New York. New York. Unique, unique New York. York. You know, for the record, we very frequently do that as a joke to, in the beginning of every taping. We just oh, don't yeah. record it. <laughs> yeah, we rehearsed The human that. torch was denied a bank loan. There's a lot of anchorman going on <laughs> before we even push record on this thing. But I just wanted to give you kudos. Because when you did article selection, I was like, there's just no way I could do this one. I'd never survive it. <laughs> anyway, this one's pretty different and actually very, I- I'm quite curious as to what you think about it. So we know that opioids cause respiratory depression, probably through interfering with the ventilatory response to hypercarbia, right? Normally, you know, PCO2 rises and that makes you really want to breathe fast. Benzodiazepines actually do not do that. When you just start loading people up on Valium, at least up to doses that most humans are capable of consuming, that doesn't cause specific respiratory depression. 
but they potentiate the action of the oxycodone. Benzo by itself doesn't do it. Opioids do. You put them together and the benzos exacerbate the opioid respiratory depression. So we know now, and lots of agencies, the CDC, FDA, et cetera, have said, hey, you should not be co-prescribing benzodiazepines and opioids, right? So they issued black boxes around that, et cetera. At the same time, though, the FDA recognized that if we're telling providers not to give benzodiazepines, they're likely going to substitute it with something else, right? Some other anxiolytic type of medication. And so what they did, this is fascinating, when they issued the black box, they commissioned a study to look at potential substitutes to see if any of them caused the same problem, okay? And they did that in rat models, right? So they're like, okay, give the rats oxycodone, then give them a bunch of these other things and see what happens. And out of that, two drugs popped up. And one was paroxetine, which is the SSRI, also known as Paxil. And then the other one was the atypical antipsychotic catiapine, also known as Seroquel. And both of those exacerbated this opioid-induced respiratory depression in these rat models. So this study aimed to determine whether this is true in humans, healthy humans as well, right? Because then we ought, to, we ought to start thinking about like, you know, this is a bad substitute or whatever. So it's a volunteer study. Adults aged 18 to 50 with no alcohol or opioid exposure were recruited and were exposed to paroxetine, catiapine, or placebo for five days. And then they crossed over, right? So the first, it was in random order. So one week you got catiapine, the next, then there was a week washout, then you got paroxetine, then you got placebo. So basically each individual had five courses. They then were exposed to oxycodone on day one and day five of each of those cycles, right? And then the experimenters provoked the subjects by hooking them up to a breathing apparatus. This is, sounds great. And this breathing apparatus slowly increases the partial pressure of carbon dioxide to 55 milli, whatever, millimeters of mercury, right? So you just start breathing, it's room air then they just keep increasing it. And what happens to normal people when you do that is you start breathing super fast, right? Because that's like a crazy high level of PCO2 in a normal person. So the key outcome was the minute ventilation when the end tidal CO2 hit 55, right? And the theory is that it should be really, really fast. And if this oxycodone effect happens, then it'll be slower than it should be. Subjects seem to absolutely hate this experiment. Like three quarters of them experienced nausea, two thirds had dizziness, people were passing. It was, did not sound like a particularly fun experiment to do. Did you say where the study was done? I don't remember. It's Florian, Schreier, Gershuni et al. I don't know. The methodology is extremely well prescribed. This is like a volunteer study, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. They did describe that a fair number of people dropped out. They're like after one cycle and they had to have replacement people and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, I hope they were well compensated because this is like a more than a month long study where you have to come in and get tortured six different times, right? On day one and five for each cycle. So what do they find? On day five of the exposure, oxycodone and placebo. So the mixture of oxycodone plus placebo resulted in a minute ventilation of 34 liters per minute, okay? Oxycodone plus catiapine was 35.3 liters per minute. 
So there was no decrease in the minute ventilation. But paroxetine plus oxycodone resulted in a minute ventilation of 25 liters per minute. That's a huge decrease in the minute ventilation. Secondary outcomes showed that the combination of oxycodone plus paroxetine also increased resting PCO2 by 4 millimeters of mercury and decreased oxygen sat by 1%, just resting oxygen sat by 1%. So that's pretty interesting. It decreases your minute ventilation when challenged. It decreases your resting O2 sat by a little bit and increases your PCO2. And this is in totally healthy people, right? So that's something. It's not a clinical trial. These are healthy volunteers. They were not at all habituated to oxycodone or paroxetine for that matter, which might have some effects. Although a lot of people say that the respiratory depression effects of opioids, you can't really habituate to. You habituate to the pain, but not that element of it. So also the doses were really well controlled. And so they weren't like taking more oxycodone or high levels of paroxetine or oxycodone. And the exposure to rising CO2 does not exactly reflect normal human physiology. So whether this translates to unintentional overdose events is a question for another likely population-based study. But I thought it was interesting and the study methodology is really cool and worthy of being on EMA. And maybe the message that just be careful if you've got someone on Paxil that you're considering prescribing oxycodone to doesn't mean you can't do it. But, you know, maybe think about that, you know, when you're, when you're doing it and maybe you don't have to worry about it as much with someone's on Seroquel. And the other message might be if you're a student somewhere, like I remember when I was an undergraduate, like we used to get those, you know, flyers, come yeah. do this study, yeah. but we'll pay you hundred yeah. bucks. Whatever. It's not all like going to be about alcohol and partying. Yeah. yeah every <laughs> once in a while, they're going to suffocate you. This is a well-controlled laboratory experiment on human volunteers. The key finding is that paroxetine or Paxil seems to potentiate the decreased hypercarbic respiratory drive induced by oxycodone. Catiapine, on the other hand, did not appear to further reduce respiratory depression when compared to oxycodone. Abstract number 15. Fluid resuscitation and inotropic support in patients with septic shock treated in a pediatric emergency department, an open-label trial, and this is by Aramain et al. from Sirius. Curious. Sirius. Curious. Why are you calling it Sirius? <laughs> so, I did look it up just to see how to pronounce it. I'm just going to play it for everybody right now. Sirius. That's how Siri pronounces it. It's C-U-R-E-U-S. If you're the editor-in-chief of C-U-R-E-U-S. I'm just going to do it one more time. Serious. Hold on. I, I don't know if you've ever done this. You can slow it down just for Mike. Serious. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the paper. That debate can rage on. And editor's commentary. <laughs> so there have been several papers recently questioning the value versus harm of aggressive fluid resuscitation, the strategy that was set forth in that original surviving sepsis campaign. And I think we might sort of realize there's an issue here or some controversy in adult patients, maybe not so much in pediatric patients, because septic shock is not very common there, but kids do get septic shock. And there's a lot less data in this group to help guide us towards optimal resuscitation strategies. So this is a study from two emergency departments in Paraguay, 
where the authors conduct an open-label trial in which patients aged less than 18 years with septic shock, which they defined as severe infection leading to cardiovascular dysfunction, so hypotension, need for treatment with a vasoactive med, or impaired perfusion. And they basically, per protocol, gave all these patients, all patients with suspected septic shock right off the front, an initial 20 cc per kilo bolus. And those who had no clinical improvement and no signs of fluid overload got a second 20 cc per kilo bolus. After this second bolus, so a total of 40 cc's per kilo, patients who were still not improved, they still looked like they weren't fluid overloaded, still shocky, then at that point were randomized to either get epinephrine or a third bolus prior to administration of epinephrine. So functionally here, what they are doing is they are testing 40 cc's per kilo versus 60 cc's per kilo before starting an epinephrine infusion. Of 229 patients screened, 63 were included in the study. The mean age was just about three years, and they were split almost exactly half and half male and female. The primary outcome was shock resolution in the first hour, and the difference was, drumroll, none. I have no idea they didn't report it. <laughs> that is also true. I looked Seri- all up and Serious? <laughs> I am serious. Curi- I looked, I'm curious. I if I'm serious, (laughs) I looked all up and down this paper that is listed as the primary outcome in the method. I just couldn't find it. So what did they report in there? Well, they must've had a results section. They they report on hypoperfusion at one hour. I'm not sure if that's the same thing, which favored the 40 CC per kilo before epinephrine group at a rate of 7% versus 59%. In the abstract, All they present are secondary outcomes. And the secondary outcomes all favor the 40 cc per kilo group. So the early administration of... Prior to epi. Yeah, not waiting to get a full 60. But the differences are big. Too big. Mechanical ventilation, 10% versus 41%. And mortality, 10% versus 33%. So... These absolute differences are obviously way too big to be explained by an extra 20 cc's per kilo before starting the epinephrine, particularly when they have a table. They have a lot of tables in this paper where they show the time to epinephrine. It's not that different, like actually, yeah, between the two groups. Well, you drown the kids with the, the extra 20 cc's per kilo. And so, you're actually killing them. But I do think that this paper is a nice lesson in some of the, you know, because the abstract is written really clearly saying, hey, there's a mortality difference here. We all need to change our practice. It's one of those papers that in my mind is like, oh, we should listen to EMA or have an EM, someone who's knowledgeable about this kind of thing sort of go over a paper with you like this. Because their findings are much more likely explained by a lack of blinding with a lot of the outcomes being subjective, not mortality, but a lot of the secondary outcomes. I just kind of hit the highlights. Very small numbers, right? Just like 30 kids, something like that. But most importantly, there was a massive failure of randomization. Although they don't provide clinical assessments of sepsis, right? Like there's a lot of scores you can use, say how bad the sepsis, they don't do any of them. They just don't say them. They do give laboratory values at the time of randomization. And by the lab values, in my read, the 60 cc per kilo group is way sicker. And they give some statistical significance there. And they are statistically significant lower pH 
bicarb and a much higher lactate. They're just sicker. That's interesting. You're right. There's probably a lot more to learn about methodology reading papers in this paper than there is to learn about clinical medicine. For example, when you have a randomized clinical trial, there is no reason to put a p-value for differences between the two groups because by definition, the difference between them is random. It's Because that a p-value is what is the chance that this difference occurred at random? If it's a randomized clinical trial, by def- it is 100%. The 100% chance that this is due to randomness. Now, there could be big differences there, but it is random. So it's just like, it shows a little bit of a lack of sophistication and stuff there that, that, is, that is a bit concerning yeah, I think, for sure. I think the way you summed it up was right. You can't, you can't take much home clinically here, although it is worth knowing that for you know, these septic shock pediatric patients, you are supposed to give 40 cc's to 60 cc's that most guidelines say that before initiating pressors. So maybe that's just like a little bit of a clinical reminder, but it's not going to change the way we practice this paper. And maybe you'll learn something about methods. I think that's right. Editor's commentary. In this open label randomized trial, the authors report that pediatric patients with septic shock who were still shocky after a 40 cc per kilo fluid resuscitation who received epinephrine at that time instead of more fluids had improved clinical outcomes. In adults, the evidence is definitely building that overly aggressive fluids might do more harm than good, and this may be true in kids as well, but unfortunately, this study is too small and suffers from a failure of randomization, which makes their findings hypothesis-generating in a best-case scenario. Abstract number 16, the effects of magnesium co-administration during treatment of hypokalemia in the emergency department. This is by Tuttle et al., and it's in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So there's a school of thinking that says you cannot correct potassium without giving magnesium, even if the magnesium level is normal. Now, I have to admit, I must have missed that day in pathophysiology. And I've heard numerous explanations over the years as to why this might be the case but it's always seemed like bunk to me. And I'll tell you why. A lot of people, this, this is true, a lot of people might not know this, but I did an entire internal medicine residency. That is a true statement. And mostly during that entire residency, I replaced potassium. That's what you do as an internal medicine resident. That's like your day-to-day is like, oh, how much potassium does this person need today? You know, to 20, 40, 80, 100 milliequivalents, whatever. And during that whole residency, I never gave any magnesium. I only started giving magnesium once I became an ER doc. So I'm like super confused internally about this. So these authors, who are basically all pharmacologists at Loma Linda, seem to agree with me. They're like, yeah, we think this is garbage. So they conducted this study, and it is not a great study. It's a single center retrospective chart review with, you guessed it, no chart review methods at all. They looked at how the administration of magnesium was associated with the time to normalization of the potassium in ED patients who were getting IV repletion of potassium. Basically, they found patients at the Loma Linda ER from 2016 to 20 who were getting IV potassium, and they also had to have hypokalemia, so K of less than 3.5. They divided those patients into those who received mag, either IV or PO, within four hours of the initiation of the potassium repletion, and those who did not then compared the outcomes. 
The key outcome was time to potassium normalization. Secondary outcomes included the proportion of patients who had potassium normalized within 24 hours. They looked at adverse events, length of stay, peak magnesium levels, etc. They said they needed a sample size of 44 in each group, but expanded the study to include 100 in each group. But it's not really clear how they selected those 100. They looked through 330 charts. They ended up with 200 patients, 100 who got MAG with their IV potassium, and 100 who did not. The groups were hugely imbalanced at baseline, with the group who got magnesium having lower baseline potassium levels, 2.8 versus 3.0, and they were more likely to be suffering from apparent symptomatic hypokalemia, 34% versus 19%. They don't explain that, like how, why they wouldn't have matched them on those kinds of things, or even how they knew that they were symptomatic. And that goes back to the chart review methodology problem, but whatever. That's what they said. Pre-infusion serum magnesium was drawn more commonly in the GOT-MAG group, 44 versus 27%. And on average, when it was drawn, it was a little lower in that group than the other group. The key finding is that the time to potassium normalization was not different between the groups, nor was the proportion that had normalized potassium at 24 hours. This was true even after adjusting for all these baseline differences between groups, which they did through a linear regression or logistic regression, depending on the outcome. Even in the subgroup of patients that had initial hypomagnesemia, the outcomes were similar between those that did and did not receive additional magnesium replacement. In fact, the only thing that was different across the groups in terms of outcome was the proportion that developed hypermagnesemia, which was as you may have guessed, higher in the group that got magnesium. This study is severely flawed. I've already alluded to it. It's all the stuff we're accustomed to. There's no protocol. We don't know when or how missing data was handled, particularly missing outcome data, which is a huge problem. How did you handle when there wasn't a potassium level at 24 hours? You know, you just like, if it had been high and then went low or all those kinds of questions. I think the methodology would have also been a lot stronger if they'd used sort of some other form of matching as opposed to trying to control for it on the linear scale at the end, like maybe propensity score matching, something like that. So, you know, I get it. The quality of this evidence is not high enough to seriously affect clinical practice, but it does at least suggest that magnesium may not be this sort of all-important adjunct to potassium repletion, at least when the magnesium levels are in this sort of 0.7 to 0.8 range, which is where they were in this study population. Editor's commentary. Current dogma suggests that magnesium replacement is key to being able to successfully replete potassium in patients with hypokalemia. This relatively weak study did not find an association between time to potassium normalization or the probability of potassium normalization within 24 hours for ED patients with hypokalemia who were treated with or without magnesium supplementation. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Effect of increased intraprofessional familiarity on team performance, communication, and psychological safety on inpatient medical teams, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Ayasere et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine. This is kind of a Fun one, kind of an interesting one. So failures in team communication have been cited as substantial contributors to medical errors. 
And a strong sense of teamwork, so building a sense of teamwork, might be one way to counterbalance this. And I think, you know, if you think about this, even in your own life, right, sort of as an example, in unfamiliar environments, probably everybody listening, me included, people are generally less likely to speak up, ask for help, or admit errors, right? If you just don't know anybody, you're the new person on the team, the new person on the service, you're just being quiet. And they're sort of saying here that might contribute to patient safety and on the flip side to good medical care if you were more comfortable talking about those things. Now, residents certainly feel this sense of unfamiliarity as during their training, they work on multiple floors and multiple units. They're constantly rotating around and they're doing this very frequent clips. This is a really interesting 12-month randomized trial from Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, where 33 residents and 91 nurses were randomized to completing all 16 weeks of their general medicine inpatient times that are four months on the ward, right? Either to one ward. So all the residents, all the nurses stayed there for the whole time, and that was the intervention group with 43 nurses, or to completing their 16 weeks on four different wards. So they kind of moved them, your ward A, then ward B, then ward C, over that same time period. And that's the control group where there were 48 nurses split among those wards. They just kind of rotated them around. The primary outcome was an assessment of team performance in physician-nurse simulation scenarios at 6 and 12 months as measured by a scale called the NOTEX scale, which is designed to assess interdisciplinary teamwork on non-technical skills in the OR, which they adapted to assess these intern nurse teamwork things during simulated patient encounters. I must say, when we selected this paper, I had a different intervention in my head. I, I thought this was like, we took everybody out for beers, got them all liquored up and happy to talk to each other. And then we stuck them back on the wards and said, yeah, they're friendly. Do they do better? So it's a little so, different. It, this it is, is how you make friends. It is different. So, but let me get there. Let me yeah. get through the. Okay. It's, it's a cool paper, actually. So what they found was there was no difference in team performance at the six-month simulation exam. But at the 12-month simulation exam, the intervention teams received a higher mean overall score in leadership and management, and on individually rated items are more likely to feel like they worked as a unit, 100% versus 60%. Negotiate with patients. There's one that's kind of a difficult case about the you need them to take an insulin dose and the patient won't do it. 61% versus 10%. And feel like there was support for other team members, 60% versus 24%. And communication, effective communication as a team. 56 versus 19%. Now, interestingly, although nurses in the intervention group were more likely to report that their relationship with interns was excellent to outstanding and feel that the input of all clinical providers was valued, and these are big differences, 90% versus 50%, and say that feedback was delivered in a positive way to promote positive interactions at the six-month period, all these differences went away at the 12-month period. But the reason for that is that on the rotating group, they finally caught up. So it's not like they all like sort of regressed to the mean. It's by a year, everybody had kind of, I think, felt a little more comfortable with each other. 
So all these values sort of went up again. Now, they give lots of data about the clinical environment as well. And this is, I think, sort of what Mike was, I agree. You know, when we first picked this paper, we were kind of like, if you're best frenzies with all yeah. the nurses and the staffs and stuff, do you work better? Right. Or have a happier and environment? An intervention to make people best frenzies. And they kind of go into that a little bit. So this is a really full paper, and I'm really just kind of hitting the highlights. They do like stop motion monitoring of where people are and the interactions and stuff. And they did find a few things like the intervention teams are more likely to have nurses present on rounds, like twice as likely, actually. There were higher paging rates in the control arm, which I thought was kind of funny, you know? Yeah. They're just like a, a lot higher, like 90 pages per some value versus like 40 pages per some time value, whatever. And maybe that's just because the nurses felt more comfortable just asking you or talking to you instead of saying, page doctor, Well, if you're so on rounds so. with them, you know, then you're going to probably have a lot of those questions answered on rounds. That's a great yeah. point. And they also, they don't say how they measured this, but the personal conversations mm -hmm. were much higher in the intervention arm. Yeah, I don't know how they figured out they were talking about personal things instead of, but basically this is all boiling down to being friends, working as a team is a good thing. I think that the theoretical underpinnings of it, of like, you know, you are more comfortable talking, more comfortable working through cases. But, but it's interesting because if we're trying to extrapolate into emergency medicine, this is sort of damning, right? Because we're like the poster children of like, it's different people all the time. Traveler nurses, patients that change all the time, doctors that change all the time, consultants that change all the time. I mean, we're like chaos compared to a ward. I think that's a good point. That's, there's probably a lot of truth to that. But on the flip side, I think emergency medicine as a specialty, it's always been really good about understanding the concept of teamwork. You know, That's I think it's, it's very unusual to say, like, you're a nurse, get out of here or something. Yeah. We really recognize that we can't do anything unless they start that IV in a critic, you right. know. So we do recognize the value of teamwork. You're right in that the people are always changing. But I think the culture has always been one of inclusiveness, which I'm really proud of like that, of our specialty. Well, I would tend to agree. I'm just, what I'm trying to understand is with the effect of doing something to advance teamwork, you're sort of hypothesizing that we do with this already. Right. I think that's what you're hypothesizing. And maybe I'm saying that maybe we need it even more than other, or, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. Be yeah, an interesting I don't think I'm condition. hypothesizing okay. anything. I think I'm just saying that it's pretty clear here that when you're more familiar, that's mm -hmm. the word they keep using. Yeah. When you're more familiar with your team, it actually might lead to better yeah. clinical outcomes. And so I think that whatever way you can think of to do that, now you're right. So maybe there's a lot of rotators, people who don't work very much per diems and stuff. Maybe we, that does mean there needs to be more social inclusivity or something like that, where you have some events, invite everybody so you get to know everyone. I think that what I'm trying to say is in the introduction section, when I was reading it, I'm like, yeah, that does make sense. If you know people and you're comfortable with them, you'd probably be more comfortable asking questions and asking questions about management, which could save your butt if somebody asks a question yeah. about something you didn't think about. And we're not going to come to any conclusions no, of here. Course. I'm, I'm literally in my mind just trying to think of like, what would interventions look like? In a department where you have a lot of people rotating, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, nurses, doctors, all that kind of day, night, you know, there's day nurses, night nurses, all that kind of stuff. How would you execute on it to improve that if it's a problem in the emergency department? And one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about is like, you know how we have like our, our huddles, 
you know, things like that could in real time sort of like solidify a team. I don't know, obviously, if that has. I don't think they're trying to say anything about what you should or shouldn't do. They're just trying to conceptually say it's a good idea to try to become familiar with your team, to work as a team. There's going to be some value there. Could be beers night out. I'm not sure. Editor's commentary. In this randomized control trial from Mass General Hospital, interns and nurses who worked together more closely were more likely to rapidly feel like a team with good relationships, positive interactions, and a sense of all opinions having value. And over time, this same group performed better as a team in simulated cases. I think in the ED, we have always seen the value of working as a unit and respecting members of our team fully. These authors suggest that increased familiarity helps, and in an environment where people are changing and there are new faces, this might just be the excuse you've always wanted to organize that post-shift drink. Abstract number 18, The Impact of Virtual Care in an Emergency Department Observation Unit. This is by Abiri et al., and it's in Annals of Emergency Medicine. So here's the concept I've been waiting for, tele-emergency medicine. (laughs) I'm doing it right now. I'm, you're soaking in it. <laughs> so this is not what this really is. This is really teleobs, and frankly, it's not even really that, but we'll get into that. So the authors start by noting that observation evaluations are perfect for telemedicine because they rely on cognitive skills as opposed to procedural skills, and there's a theoretic sort of discussion of that in the introduction. They take The authors take advantage of the natural experiment that COVID pandemic provided to examine a shock in the way observation services were provided at two hospitals in the Emory Health System. Basically, pre-pandemic, they had three hospitals that each had an observation unit staffed 24-7 with an APP, and the APP rounded at intervals with an on-site emergency physician. During the pandemic, two of those hospitals changed the model to replace on-site rounding with virtual rounding in the EDOBS unit, while the third hospital had no change in the model. But, and again, very important, all three hospitals always had 24-7 APPs in the OBS unit. The research question is whether or not this change to virtual rounding was associated with any change in outcomes for observation patients, specifically utilization outcomes like length of stay, cost of care, and the admission rate from OBS. The theory being that maybe the inability to directly examine the patient might cause some change, probably with a shift towards more conservative stuff, right? Like, "Ah, I can't tell, why don't you just admit them to the hospital or whatever, or keep them in OBS in extra days, that kind of thing. Because there were a lot of changes that occurred pre and post pandemic, the authors use a difference in different strategy. And that means that they compared the outcome changes at the intervention EDs before and after the change in rounding with a control hospital that did not have a change in rounding strategies during that same time period. They also exclude that initial six month of pandemic lockdown when they first changed the model because all hell was breaking loose at that point. The difference in differences, so the difference between before and after and between the hospitals, represents the effect size that might be attributable to the change in staffing modeling. The study consists of just about 40,000 ED visits overall in the pre and post phase across the three hospitals. I'm not going to go into all their analytic techniques. Suffice it to say, they were numerous. And it's pretty 
you know, I'll say standard and modern econometric analysis for this kind of diff and diff approach. But in the end, as one might expect, this study was tremendously neutral. There were no differences in cost, length of stay, or admission percent before and after the intervention when compared to the control hospital. A few things should really be considered, though. They had a stable set of APPs 24-7, and it's likely that, frankly, the attending has very little to offer in that context, right? Might the situation be different if there were no APPs there, or the APPs were trying to round virtually or you know, weren't present 24-7? Might it be different if the APPs they had were inexperienced or if they were new? Also, it's possible, and this is a significant concern, that knowing there was no attending there, the intervention group might refer less complicated cases to that OBS unit, right? They're like, oh, you know, Jim's going to be rounding from home tomorrow. Better not send him the complex cellulitis case, right? And if they did that, then a neutral finding is actually a bad finding because the patients you know, could have been a little less sick. Now, they look at the patients before and after, and there's no evidence that they're obviously less you know, or different, or there's a difference in those differences across it. But even a small difference could result in, in some problems there. The other part is that there was no balancing measure. And so that is, they, they didn't look at like unexpected bounce backs from discharged ED OBS patients, which would have been something to look at. And they actually make note and say that that wasn't available to them. I'm not sure why it wouldn't be available to them if the other data was available, but that does create the possibility for an unbalanced negative outcome that they just did not look at at all. So there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, I think ultimately this is an effort to demonstrate equivalence of tele versus in-person rounding in an effort to convince CMS to keep reimbursing for telecare, which I generally agree they should do. I'm just not really that convinced that this experiment, or, you know, it's not really an experiment, this observational study really teaches us all that much. Although I would like to see some study that shows that we can tele-attend from home. Then... Yeah, then I would accept all these flaws. Well, that's what they did here. They yeah. tele-attended from home. No, but, but you mean for the, yeah, I mean for mean the, for the whole deal. Oh, yep. yeah. You put the then, I'm telling you right now, we're talking earlier about how you get on EMA. That's how you that's a paper, a paper chase. chaser. Yeah, paper chase, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. Yeah. You, yeah. Tell you just do that one. It's the surrogate from Arrested Development. Yeah. You put the hat on a that's nurse right. or an APP or a resident, and I just like kind of watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Controlled like an Atari joystick yeah. from my house. Editor's Commentary. This study shows that telerounding with an emergency physician is likely as effective as in-person rounding for an ED OBS unit that is staffed with a stable cohort of APPs 24-7. Quick take. Abstract number 19, risk of radiation exposure to ED personnel from portable radiographs. This is by Briggs et al. from the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Medical imaging, common practice in the emergency department. I've heard of it. Yeah. And while some of these studies take place sort of in a dedicated, they go to the radiology suite to get their x-rays, some take place at the bedside in the form of portable x-rays. And as these occur in clinical care areas, it's possible that ED providers are being exposed to ionizing radiation in amounts that might reach unsafe levels. As a point of reference, the maximum permissible occupational exposure for whole body radiation as part of your job as set forth by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Committee is 50 millisieverts per year. 
As a further point of reference, the average radiograph is less than 10 millisieverts. A chest x-ray is about 0.1, a pelvic x-ray is 1.1, and an extremity x-ray is 0.001 millisieverts of exposure. Now, certainly, if you look at these numbers and you're even terrible at math, you'd recognize that in a single patient encounter, it's impossible to get anywhere close to this maximum acceptable level. But what about cumulatively over the course of, you know, three months, a year, whatever it is? So these authors, and the senior author on this is actually Ed Panacek. Yeah, I saw that. I yeah. was There's only three authors, and okay. he's the senior author. There's a first, a middle, and a senior. From a level one trauma center, basically asked for nurses and attendings and residents to volunteer to wear dosimeters while on shift and adhere to their standard safety protocols while at work, like, you know, wear a lead apron if there's a bunch of trauma films going on, or step out of the room. And over a three-month period, none of the dosimeters, I'm just going to cut to the chase here, worn by any provider registered any radiation. They all were just, every provider tested, every type, it was all zero. Now, there is a minimum recordable dose on here. You have to hit a 0.1 millisievert mark to register anything. So they, probably not zero, zero, but they were below this incredibly low level. And that's cumulative. Cumulative. They also placed a dosimeter, this was kind of interesting, in the recess rooms Mm -hmm. and in other care areas that weren't recess rooms and said, okay, over that three-month period, how much did the scatter just hit the post, right. you know, or whatever you it is. lived in this room. Yeah. And the answer there is also very low. In the recess rooms, it was 0.18 millisieverts of exposure. And in the other patient care areas, there was not a lot of x-rays going on. It was zero. So you're saying that I don't need to wear lead. What I'm saying <laughs> is, basically, they're saying if you follow standard safety protocols, like all the providers did here, you're creating for yourself a condition where radiation exposure is definitely way below recommended allowable levels. And I think what they're sort of trying to imply here is even if you, let's say you're not a level one trauma center, you're kind of a smaller ED, you don't have aprons around and that kind of thing. They're sort of saying that the scatter, like from the non-targeted things is really, really low. So do the six feet thing, stand back. But generally, this is a nice paper letting us know that we are safe if we follow standard safety protocols. One thing I just have to mention, Dr. Panacek, I don't know if you listen to EMA, this is pretty old data. Uh-oh. And I don't even know why my eye went to this because it's nowhere in the manuscript. But, you know, I look at things like disclosures yeah, yeah, and sure. stuff at the end. And this was presented at a conference. It was presented at MEMIC. MEMIC, the MEMIC. Right, yeah, where I Mike mean, and I have lectured the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Emergency Medicine Congress. It's a great conference. And guess when it was presented? Uh, I'm going to say 2014. Way off. Go on. 2007. Whoa. <laughs> this is almost like coming up on the 20-year mark for data. So that is pretty old. Because I was critical of some paper last yeah. week that came out. Like the data was like from 2012. This data is from 2007. They finally got around to writing it up. Wow. Well, good for you, Dr. Briggs, for eventually doing it. But come on. little speediness there next time. Edit this commentary. By asking ED providers to wear dosimeters at work in a busy level one trauma center, these authors show that the level of radiation exposure to ED staff found in this study was well below the maximum recommended allowable occupational exposure of 50 millisieverts per year. Standard precautions 
will keep us safe. Abstract number 20, association between in-person versus telehealth follow-up and rates of repeated hospital visits among patients seen in the ED. This is by Shaw et al. and it's in JAMA Network Open. So telemedicine is clearly carving out a space for itself in the house of medicine. But is it really the value add that so many doctors who practice it want to believe? I'm sure that each of you has had a significant number of patients come to your ED after recently being evaluated by their PMD or urgent care via telemedicine appointment, only for them then to come to the ED, be found to have like a little minor thing that could have easily been assessed, treated, and discharged if only the patient had been able to be examined by the provider. I mean, I feel like that happens, carry the one, you know, 122 times a day in our, in our department. These authors hypothesize that patients discharged from the ED who have post-ED telehealth follow-up will have higher bounce-back rates and hospitalizations compared to those who have in-person follow-ups. For some reason, and I must admit this, this paper just rubbed me the wrong way. But let's go through it and like maybe you can help me <laughs> see if I'm being overly critical or not. To test this, they conducted an observational study of patients discharged from two EDs that were part of an integrated health system in Los Angeles. Subjects were included in the analysis if they were discharged following an ED visit and had a follow-up with a primary care physician within their integrated health system within 14 days. They were not randomized or intervened upon in any way. The exposure variable was whether this follow-up visit occurred via telehealth or in-person. The key outcome was a return visit to the ED or hospitalization within 30 days of that index ED visit. The study period was January 2020 through September of 2021, so basically during the most acute phases of the COVID pandemic. There were 17,000 ED visits that met entry criteria. And again, the entry criteria means they had an ED visit, and then within 14 days, they were seen by a PMD, either virtually or in person. About 12,000 of those visits had an in-person follow-up, and about 6,000 of them had a telemedicine follow-up. Mean age was 53. Importantly, 60% of these patients had commercial insurance, 30% had Medicare, and almost no one was uninsured. After adjustment for a variety of clinical and demographic factors, the odds of a repeat visit was 1.23 times higher for patients who were seen via telehealth as compared to those who were seen in person. This translates to about 28 more ED revisits for every 1,000 follow-up visits. So this supports the hypothesis that telehealth providers, not being able to actually see and examine people, referred them to the ED. But if that's the case, what about hospitalizations? And interestingly, the odds of hospitalization were 1.3 times higher for telehealth visits compared to in-person visits. So that's kind of complicated. How do you explain that? And it's because obviously those patients came back to the ED, presumably, and they were assessed to need to be admitted. Yeah, because what you want to hear here is that they're sending them into the ED unnecessarily. Right. And it sounds like the message is more like they're sending them into the ED, but they are getting hospitalized too. Another hypothesis would be that, well, they just do a lousy job at post-ED follow-up. So patient went in, they're like, ah, I'm feeling better, I feel worse. And the telehealth person's like, eh, whatever. And then two days later, they were really sick 
And so they needed to come mm, back. That interpretation is going to get messy. Yes, it is. So that is an alternative hypothesis. Now, that's not good. Neither one of those is good, right? One that they are loosey-goosey with sending people back or that they just provide generally bad care. However, an equally plausible explanation is that this is an observational study and selection bias accounts for all of it. For example, I'm going to ask you the following question. Have you tried to make an appointment to see a primary care doctor? I have, actually. Yeah, you talked to me about this. Yeah. And that's not possible currently, particularly in Los, West Los Angeles, where this study happened. So if someone actually had a primary care appointment within 14 days of the, an ED visit in person, to me, I'm quite suspicious that that was a pre-scheduled appointment to deal with whatever, your diabetes or your high blood pressure or something else, and actually may have had nothing to do with your ankle sprain or belly pain or whatever else. So that's those cases and the ones, but if you really felt sick and you're like, I really need to be seen or dot, 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 they're like, well, I can squeeze you into a telehealth visit at 9 p.m. or whatever else. And so that the ones who sought out telehealth were actually sick, right? And so this is a classic case of confounding. And actually, it's a classic case of reverse causation, where the sick people went to telehealth, not that telehealth caused sickness, right? So I think that that's a, you know, a really, really important possibility. And this methodologist does not allow to assess that at all. Interestingly, and ironically a little bit, is within an integrated health system, you could sort of figure this out a little bit by looking at when their primary care schedule follow-up was actually scheduled. And you could have eliminated all the ones that were scheduled before the ED visit, for example. And then maybe that would have shed a little bit more light on this. Listen, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone seriously believes that telehealth is better than in-person visits in terms of the ability to deliver accurate diagnoses, except maybe the doctors who you know, really want to stay doing this. The question is, what are the good uses for this strategy? And how effective is this strategy when there aren't alternatives? When it's 9 p.m. and your doctor's office is closed, it's either, you know, go to the ER or take a telehealth visit. And we can't know that, right? We can't know how many ED visits were averted because the patient was able to get a telehealth visit as opposed to not get a telehealth visit and then they just showed up to the ED. So we need a lot stronger methodology before passing judgment on what role telehealth has to play in post-ED follow-up. And frankly, this one just sets up, you know, more of a question mark than it does provide anything that even remotely resembles an answer to that question. Editor's commentary. This observational study shows that patients who had a telehealth visit as opposed to an in-person visit within 14 days of their ED visit were slightly more likely to have a repeat ED encounter and be hospitalized. It's not clear if this association is causal or the result of unmeasured confounding and further research is needed to determine the relationship between these things. Welcome, everyone, to the February 2023 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beck-Esme. With me, as always, is Jess Monis. Jess, 
Yes. Welcome to February. Hi. It's been a few months since we've just kind of had a check-in for the audience on how you're doing. And I feel like people want to know, how are you doing? You know what? I'm doing pretty well. I'm feeling good. I'm doing well. I'm halfway through my oral chemo, so I'm going to be done. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I am very much looking forward to being there. Oh, that's so great. And everyone out there, she's got this really fabulous short hair right now that is so fun. If by fabulous you mean a mix of like Christopher Walken (laughs) and a munchie and a helmet, then yeah, it's it's fantastic. (laughs) Hey, it's coming back. It's looking very full. And luscious, if <laughs> if short and spiky and, you know, uneven. But that's okay. Chia pet. You know what? It, it works. It's fine. She looks good, guys. She looks good. Okay. Well, I'm so glad that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know that the listeners are all really happy for that as well. We have some great papers, so I think we should dive in. Let's do it. Paper number one, video-assisted laryngoscopy for pediatric tracheal intubation in the emergency department. Obviously, peds airways are always super stressful, and the debate for peds and adults, honestly, kind of rages on as to whether video or direct is superior. Most recently, we had the Videography in Pediatric Resuscitation, or VIPER, trial, where they did not find an increased success rate for video among the 500 kids enrolled. Here, the authors used two large pediatric airway databases, including patients from both the U.S. and Canada, to ask this question basically again. As always with these airway studies, it's important to know what is defined as a successful attempt. And here they define a successful attempt as an ET2 placed through the trachea before removing the laryngoscope. They included data on nearly 1,500 intubations with video used in approximately three quarters of these. And the mean patient age was actually pretty young at only 37 months. Overall, the first attempt success was 70%. In their statistical analysis, they found a higher first attempt success with video. They looked at a variety of adverse outcomes and found that patients intubated with video had a non-significant reduction in the odds of any adverse airway outcomes and a significant reduction in the odds of severe adverse airway outcomes or severe hypoxemia. It's a well-done, large study. It's not a trial, however, so we don't know why the different modalities were chosen for the different patients, which could, of course, impact the outcomes. Given that this is observational data, and in the context of the other studies, which were a bit more equivocal, it's hard to say that we should always be using video in kids, but it certainly seems like we should be proficient in its use and have it in our bag of tricks. Absolutely. I mean, I think the more that you could do, the more you can see. And, you know, I promise you every attending out there is like, yes, resident, use video. You know, I want to see, like, what are you looking at, right? So, uh, you know, it seems helpful. Yeah, exactly. All right, paper two, trial of endovascular treatment of acute basilar artery occlusion. Basilar artery occlusion can result in devastating outcomes, including locked-in syndrome. We know endovascular treatment can be beneficial, but what about in these posterior strokes? This randomized trial out of China demonstrated that it works. Good functional status occurred in about half the thrombectomy patients, compared to only a quarter in the control group. There was also a mortality benefit. About half the patients died at 90 days with standard care versus one-third in the endovascular arm. There was another study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that same month that echoed these results. Not too bad. This could be the game changer we need. Okay, I hope so. 
Paper number three, evaluation of the PCARN rule for traumatic brain injury applied to infants younger than three months and creation of a modified age-specific rule. Our PCARN head trauma rules broadly divide kids into those under and over age two years. But obviously, there's a huge difference in our ability to assess the mental status and then, of course, in the anatomy and the physiology of a two-year-old, a two-month-old, a two-week-old. So really, is everybody under two the same? This paper is by a well-respected pediatric research group in Spain. It's a prospective observational study of infants less than three months old who came in within 24 hours of a minor head trauma. They wanted to validate the PCARN rule and also create their own age-specific rule. They looked at almost 22,000 patients, but only about 400 of those were less than three months old. The sensitivity of PCARN, they found, for clinically important TBI was 100%, and the negative predictive value was 99.7%. There were 230 babies meeting the PCARN low-risk criteria, and none of them had a clinically important TBI. They then went on to create their own Spanish traumatic brain injury low-risk criteria for infants less than three months old using really very good methods. They determined that a young infant would qualify as low-risk provided they had no abnormal behavior, no palpable skull fracture, no scalp hematoma excluding frontal, and no severe mechanism of injury. And for this rule, they found a sensitivity and negative predictive value of 100%. Does the difference between these two rules really matter? Well, there was one child who was low-risk by PCARN, but not low-risk by the Spanish criteria, who was found to have a small epidural, but with no shift and was thought to be clinically non-important. This new rule, of course, would need validation before being applied broadly. In the meantime, regardless of which rule you apply, it's probably wise to remember that these really little babies are just a little different than the bigger ones, so you should probably use more caution in your evaluation. You know what? I love the PCARN rules, and I think it's, like, super useful. I think, you know, when you get discharged from the hospital with a new baby, they should just be like, and here's your PCARN rules. 100%. Like, it should be a pocket card that goes in the wallet. I apply right. PCARN to my own 16-month-old every single exactly. day. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Paper four. Intravenous metoprolol versus diltiazem for atrial fibrillation with concomitant heart failure. I found this paper particularly interesting because I have come across many cardiologists who are hesitant to use diltiazem in heart failure patients due to the risk of negative inotropy. And well, in EM, we love our dilt. We do. We We do. do. This happens all the time. And I'm like, no, give the dilt. Yeah. I'm like, seriously. So while the methods were a bit shoddy in this retrospective study, the outcomes were promising. Diltiazem resulted in greater heart rate reduction at 30 and 60 minutes and controlled the rate quicker than metoprolol with no difference in safety outcomes. So although this paper may not be practice changing as it stands, it can hopefully prompt a more vigorous study in the future. Great. I mean, that's the best we can ask for from, you know, the first paper showing this, right? Exactly. Okay. Paper number five, effect of ivermectin versus placebo on time to sustained recovery in outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial. The Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines, or ACTIVE-6, is an ongoing double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial investigating repurposed drugs for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID in outpatients. This paper is reporting on the use of ivermectin. I'm sure you're going to be surprised to know 
it doesn't work. Listen to Sanjay's full segment if you want all the numbers, but I don't even think it's worth belaboring. It doesn't work. I mean, are we still talking about this? <laughs> yeah, like, know, right? like, what? Yeah, he, he says nail and coffin, like we're done. <laughs> like enough with the ivermectin, seriously. <laughs> all right, paper number six. The use of additional imaging studies after biliary point-of-care ultrasound in the emergency department. This was a retrospective chart review of patients who underwent a biliary point-of-care ultrasound and then had a confirmatory study. The sensitivity and specificity of POCUS for detecting gallstones was excellent at 97 and 99%. For cholecystitis, the sensitivity was around 80%, which is consistent with prior studies, but it also had great specificity. The authors concluded that additional imaging after a positive bedside ultrasound adds little value, but in the case of a negative initial scan, further studies may be helpful. I mean, I agree with that, right? Yeah. When I have an obvious slam dunk on my own, I'll, you know, call the surgeon based on that. But if I don't, get more. Right. Yeah. I love a paper that agrees with my... <laughs> I know. That's, like, that's my favorite. My favorite. Paper number seven, validation and comparison of the PCARN rule step-by-step approach and lab score for predicting serious and invasive bacterial infections in young febrile infants. There are several rule sets out there to help us evaluate febrile infants. This paper attempts to validate a few of them, including PCARN, step-by-step, and lab score, which includes a CRP, procalcitonin, and UA, and then they also just compare it to single biomarkers. It's a prospective observational study done in Singapore, where the local policy, this is interesting, dictates that all febrile infants age 0 to 90 are admitted. So they really can get some good data. Yeah, they can get some good data on these kids because they watch all of them. So after excluding patients, mostly due to some missing records, they had just over 250 that they looked at. Among these kids, they found that almost 30% had UTIs, 1.2% had bacteremia, and 0.4%, or just one kid, had bacterial meningitis, numbers that to me are quite reassuring. So when it came to the test characteristics, this is what they found. The step-by-step score had a sensitivity of 97.7, but a specificity of only 16.9%. PCARN had a sensitivity of 88.4 and a specificity of 36.6. And then none of the single lab scores worked very well at all. ANC was the best, but even that was just not something you'd want to rely on. Overall, this paper is limited by small sample size and a small number of truly sick kids, but the conclusion is that the step-by-step might be the better of the rules evaluated here. Check out the MRAP July 2019 Pediatric Pearls on Fever in the First 60 Days, the latest tool to kind of brush up on some of these. Okay. Paper number eight, lactate as a screening tool for critical illness in a pediatric emergency department. The use of lactate as a screening tool is becoming more and more ubiquitous and has even crept into pediatrics, but how helpful is it in kids? This retrospective observational study looked at children presenting to the ED for acute evaluations who had a lactate drawn as part of their initial blood work. Of the roughly 1,300 patients evaluated, only 1% required resuscitation, and there was no significant difference between their lactate levels. So unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be all that helpful. So interesting. A few months back, we covered a paper on lactate in elderly patients. Do you remember that? And they said, you know, all these elderly patients just have these elevated lactates. We didn't really know why. And so maybe it wasn't the best screening tool. So maybe on the age extremes, we can't be using this. Right, right. I don't know. Paper number nine, utility of serum lactate on differential diagnosis of seizure-like activity 
a systematic review and meta-analysis. When we see patients with loss of consciousness, we often are asking ourselves that syncope versus seizure question. And even with a reliable witness, it's just not always clear. This paper is asking whether serum lactate is helpful in differentiating seizures from other causes of loss of consciousness. They included eight studies and almost 1,400 patients. Of these, about 900 had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, so a pretty high rate of seizure in this patient population. And in those patients, the ones with the seizure, the serum lactate did seem to be significantly higher. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the studies of this meta-analysis that are ultimately going to limit the value of the conclusion. And then not to mention that rate of generalized tonic-clonic seizure of this cohort seems just kind of way too high. More than half of the patients with loss of consciousness had a generalized seizure. I don't think so. So I agree with Sanjay's ultimate conclusion. If clinically you think the patient had a seizure and the lactate is up, that probably supports your theory, but you should probably be careful not to kind of close the book on other possible etiologies prematurely. Yeah. And you know what? I do not send a lactate on my seizure patients because it's going to be 14 and you have to right. stop repeating it. Right. <laughs> and it flags everything. And they're like, oh, this patient needs to go to the ICU. And you're like, right. no, 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 no. And aren't you going to give them vancomycin for their sepsis? <laughs> right. For their, for their sepsis seizure? No, no. All right. Paper number 10. Apixaban versus rivaroxaban in patients with atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease, a population-based study. Apixaban, aka Eliquis, and rivaroxaban, Zeralto, have pretty much pushed warfarin out of the way. But which of these two are better in AFib and valvular heart disease? The authors looked at about 20,000 patients and found that patients on apixaban were about half as likely to have an ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. They were also about half as likely to develop a GI or intracranial bleed. This is now the third large observational study demonstrating that apixaban is safer and more effective than rivaroxaban. So this should probably be the DOAC of choice. Oh, 100%. I'm sold. I, after maybe the first or second of these we talked about, I, I switched to using that exclusively, essentially, unless my pharmacist comes to me and says that there's an insurance issue and we can't use that one. Right. It's just, it just seems better. Paper number 11, Diagnostic Accuracy of a Bacterial and Viral Biomarker Point-of-Care Test in the Outpatient Setting. This paper is about a new kind of point-of-care biomarker test. The Febrid-DX Bacterial and Viral Test is a finger-stick POC immunoassay designed to detect and differentiate bacterial from viral-associated host immune response in patients. It does this by measuring a viral-associated protein and the CRP and it's going to give you results in about 10 minutes. If that were to work, this would be great. Wow. Right? This would be amazing. Do the patients need antibiotics or don't? We'll wait 10 minutes and find out. <laughs> Unfortunately, they found it did not meet their pre-specified criteria for a successful detection. So for bacterial infections, the sensitivity was 93%, specificity 88%, and negative predictive value 99%, so pretty good. For viral, unfortunately, sensitivity 70, specificity 88, and positive predictive value only 90. Hopefully, they're able to make some tweaks or something or make this work because I love it in theory, just not quite yet. Yeah, I mean, but there's a lot of potential there. Oh, they my gosh. Yeah. Work it out. Yeah. All right. Paper 12. Evaluation of the hemoptysis item in clinical decision rules for the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism in the emergency department. 
What happens if you leave hemoptysis out of the clinical decision tools for PE? Dropping hemoptysis from PERC would have resulted in one additional missed clot, taking the failure rate from 0.45 to 0.48%, and there was no difference in years. The authors claim that not including hemoptysis would have led to a 1% reduction in imaging, but I'm pretty sure you're going to order a CT anyway if the patient is hacking up blood everywhere. Overall, About 3% of the patients in the study had a PE, but 8% of the patients presenting with hemoptysis had one, so maybe just leave it in there for now. Yeah, I mean, I find this intellectually interesting, but I'm not quite sure the clinical point for me. I mean, like, it doesn't save me that much time to (laughs) not ask this question. (laughs) Is it so burdensome, like, to, like, click off hemoptysis in your clinical decision? Yeah, yeah, so... I would be curious, actually, to talk about that with the authors, like what prompted them to ask this question, because there must have been a reason, right? And so I'm just, I'm curious about that. Paper number 13, effect of cefepime slash enmetazobactam versus piperacillin tazobactam on clinical cure and microbiologic eradication in patients with complicated UTI or acute pylo, a randomized clinical trial. So enmetazobactam is a novel beta-lactamase inhibitor that when combined with cefepime, worked against beta-lactamase-producing gram-negative pathogens in vitro. This could be super helpful in treating ESBL-producing organisms that are causing more and more of the UTIs we're seeing. This is a phase 3 randomized, double-blind, multi-center study to evaluate efficacy, safety, and tolerability for this new combo drug, and they compare it to Piptazo for treating complicated UTIs and acute pylo but they found no significant difference in the clinical cure rate between the two groups. Additionally, at least for now, this new combo med is only available in an IV format with no PO step-down option, so using it would necessitate hospitalization for the entire course of the treatment. So it's probably not a practice changer yet. All right, but I like we got Piptazo and Seth Enmay, is that? Seth Enmay, Is that what we're going with? Enmay. Yeah. All right, paper 14. Effective paroxetine or quetiapine combined with oxycodone versus oxycodone alone on ventilation during hypercapnia, a randomized clinical trial. Opioids can cause respiratory depression, and while benzos don't do that in isolation, they can potentiate these effects. The FDA conducted rat studies to review drugs that could be used in place of benzos and found that paroxetine and quetiapine could potentially also worsen respiratory status. This study took healthy volunteers and created a model to see these effects on humans. To make a story short, paroxetine plus oxycodone worsened ventilatory response to hypercapnia when compared to placebo plus oxy, with a minute ventilation of 25 versus 35 liters per minute when the end tidal CO2 was 55. No difference with quetiapine. We don't know whether this will be clinically relevant in patients with hypoventilation syndromes or sleep apnea, so we definitely need some real-world data to find that out. Paper number 15, Fluid Resuscitation and Inotropic Support in Patients with Septic Shock Treated in Pediatric Emergency Department, an Open-Label Trial. We've talked a lot over the last year or so about the benefits versus harms of aggressive fluid resuscitation for a variety of conditions, including sepsis and pancreatitis, but really I think we've only or mostly talked about this in adults. This is an open-label trial of patients under 18 with septic shock performed at two EDs in Paraguay. All of the patients received an initial 
20 mLs per kg bolus of crystalloid. If they were not improved, they then received a second 20 mL per kg bolus. Then if they were not improved, they were either randomized to start epi or to receive a third 20 mL per kg bolus and then potentially start epi. So basically, they're comparing 40 mLs per kg versus 60 mLs per kg before starting pressors. Their primary outcome was shock resolution in the first hour, and for some reason they didn't actually report on that difference, which is a little bit odd, but they give results for hypoperfusion, which maybe is the same thing, I'm not exactly sure, and the secondary outcomes that they included were the need for mechanical ventilation and death. All of these, hypoperfusion, need for ventilation, death, all of them favored the 40 mLs per kg group. It's a pretty small study with some randomization problems that you can hear about over in the full segment. So it's probably not practice changing in of itself, but the evidence seems to be mounting in the adult literature that less, maybe more when it comes to fluid resuscitation. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that in the peds literature as well, because, you know, as you and I always say, Jess, children are just little adults, are they not? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right? At least in my house, they're like little, <laughs> little dictators. Yep. <laughs> Paper 16. The effects of magnesium co-administration during treatment of hypokalemia in the emergency department. Does magnesium administration help with potassium replacement? This is a retrospective study that looked at patients treated with IV potassium for hypokalemia and compared patients that were and were not given magnesium within four hours. There was no difference in time to potassium normalization, change in serum potassium after treatment, or incidence of potassium normalization within 24 hours. While the methods in this study weren't great, at least you can feel better the next time a hospitalist chastises you for not replacing the mag while giving K. Perfect. Is this going to be what? What did you call your, your pocket of bam. papers? Your BAM papers? Yeah. <laughs> BAM. Put in your BAM folder. BAM. Paper 17. Effect of increased interprofessional familiarity on team performance, communication, and psychological safety on inpatient medical teams, a randomized clinical trial. Here, authors randomized 33 residents and 91 nurses to complete all 16 weeks of their inpatient internal medicine time on one medical nursing floor, so that's the intervention group, or to completing their 16 weeks on four different floors, which is the control group. They wanted to see if the increased familiarity that developed in the team that spent a lot more of their time together would impact the team's performance. They used SIM to assess their performance at six and 12 month marks. They found no difference in the team performance at the six-month SIM evaluation, but at 12 months, the intervention team, so the group that spent that whole time together, received a higher mean overall score in leadership and management, and they were more likely to work as a unit, negotiate with the patient, support other team members, and communicate as a team. On top of this, at the six-month mark, the nurses in the intervention group were more likely to say that their relationship with the interns was excellent to outstanding and feel that their input was valued. But by 12 months, this seems to even out between the groups. So maybe we are all getting there eventually as a team, but that increased intense time together got this group of nurses and residents there faster. Nothing about this is surprising to me. I've always likened the ED to summer camp. You kind of make these fast, close friends. and You just get through this craziness together. Even though this study is done on medicine floors and not in the ED, to me, it's good evidence to support doing more to improve these team dynamics. I agree. I mean, that's what's great about the ED, right? We're all, we're basically all working as a team together. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm not surprised about this either. 
You know, another thing to think about in terms of this paper is that it's a really good argument, I think, against floating doctors around to a lot of different hospitals. You know, there's some more pushed for that, right? Like kind of we're cogs in a system and you can interchange us around the system. And maybe this is saying that's not necessarily the best thing, that doctors and nurses getting to know each other and working together might be better for the team dynamics, which should be better for patient care. So this is something to think about in terms of that. Absolutely. Plus, you don't want to just feel like a cog in a wheel. No, you know? I mean, nobody right? wants to feel like a cog. But, but we, you know, obviously we need evidence to prove that or nobody will listen to us. Yeah, fair enough. Paper 18, the impact of virtual care in an emergency department observation unit. This study looked at the impact of telemedicine rounding for ED observation units. It was a pre and post study that compared teleobs units to usual care. Length of stay was not significantly different, nor was inpatient admission status. Adverse outcomes and cost also did not differ between the groups. There was a substantial increase in the use of telemedicine with the start of the pandemic, and this further supports its use. Paper number 19, Risk of Radiation Exposure in Emergency Department Personnel from Portable Radiographs. These authors had nurses, attendings, and residents wear dosimeters that measure radiation exposure while on shift. They had them follow their just standard safety protocols while at work, so they would use lead aprons when it was appropriate. Over their three-month study period, none of the meters worn by the ED staff members registered any radiation. They also placed a meter in the recess room and around other patient care areas. The one in the recess room measured 0.18 millisieverts of exposure, and all of the others were zero. The maximum recommended allowable occupation exposure is 50 per year. So even if you're glued in the recess room, never wearing lead, you wouldn't possibly come close to reaching that amount. Basically, what we're doing works, so we should probably just keep doing it. I like this paper because as a formerly pregnant person, this was something that was on my mind for quite a long time. And this was pretty reassuring. Very reassuring. Yeah. Paper 20. Association between in-person versus telehealth follow-up and rates of repeated hospital visits among patients seen in the emergency department. This paper sought to examine the effectiveness of telehealth as a follow-up modality after being seen in the ED. It was a retrospective study that looked at patients that were evaluated by a primary care physician within 14 days of their ED visit. They found that telehealth visits were associated with increased rates of return compared to in-person visits, namely... 28 more ED returns, and 10 more hospitalizations per 1,000 encounters. This doesn't sound great, but as Mike points out, this study took place in LA where it is impossible to get to a PCP. He hypothesized that some of the in-person appointments were pre-existing and that it was actually the sicker patients that were fit into the telehealth slots. If that's true, it wouldn't be surprising that more of this cohort bounced back and were admitted. To really evaluate for a difference, you need a solid prospective trial. I'm not giving up on telehealth just yet. Oh, absolutely not. Wait, I mean, personally, I loved doing my visits as a telehealth visit, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it as a patient, too. I'm yeah, that's like, what I'm saying. No, that's what great. I mean. As, as a patient, I, I don't actually work in telehealth, but as a patient, I have only done telehealth for a couple of years now, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, Jenny, I cannot believe we just got through February. Already, just like that. How time flies, crazy. So the EMA live courses are coming up. Yay! And yeah, I know. And Aaron and I will be at the Maui one next month. And we hope to see some listeners there. Absolutely. Say hi to Jess. Aloha. 
<laughs> exactly. Say aloha to Jess. Thank you. <laughs> Fun, everybody. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty. With Ken Milne. This is the February Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. I'm on in Swami Nathan here with my Canadian brother, Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, great to be back. Oh, it's always nice to talk to my American brother. <laughs> I think you put too much of an A in front of American, but that's okay. We'll we'll take it and move oh, it, on from it's there. Not American, it's American, American. <laughs> yeah, there's really no A. There's really, the A is, it's a silent A, uh, very common. Yeah, but in Canada, it's all a. about A. I mean, we spell Canada, <laughs> C-A-N-A-D-A. Well, you know, Ken, I, I have heard a lot of Canadian jokes. They all seem to center on the fact that you guys are overly friendly. You want to avoid conflict if at all possible, unless, unless someone is besmirching maple syrup. Or talking about where the best maple syrup comes from. But otherwise, you guys like to avoid conflict, but the topic that you sent me really kind of dives into conflict. Yeah, it does. I mean, we are so over the top uh, avoiding conflicts. I mean, we apologize to furniture when we bump into it. It's like, oh, I hit a coffee table. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but this is an area of interest that I really have, and I really think that we need to discuss it. And We've discussed it sort of multiple times on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, but this, this really dives right down into one specific area. So I wanted to bring it forward. And that specific area is conflict of interest, specifically in some high-impact U.S. medical journals. In fact, the title of the article you sent me from BMJ Open, which I think you agree, this is one of our favorite journals to read, a cross-sectional examination of conflict of interest disclosures of physician authors publishing in high-impact U.S. medical journals. We're going to get to the findings of the article, but let's start by talking about what conflict of interest means. Well, I would like to make a friendly amendment to the authors on their title writing. They should have gone to the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing and put in there the failure to disclose conflicts yeah. of interest. And then, you, you know, you wouldn't have to read the article. You know what it's about. But Conflicts of interest, they have been defined as, quote, a set of circumstances that create a risk that professional judgment or actions regarding a primary interest will be unduly influenced by a secondary interest. In that definition, you use the term secondary interest. A lot of times when we think about conflict of interest, we think about money, but it's not just about money. The secondary interest can be a little broader. Cha-ching. Yes, it's not always just about the money. But, you know, when you look at financial conflicts of interest, they're so much easier to quantify. You can count how many U.S. dollars were involved. But there can also be non-financial conflicts of interest, like intellectual conflicts of interest. And these are considered by some to maybe be even more important than financial conflicts of interest. And often those non-financial conflicts of interest, things like intellectual conflicts of interest, like you mentioned, actually do tie back to financial compensation down the line. They often do come back to finances, but they may not be direct financial conflicts of interest. And so we should just be quite clear about that. And as physicians, you know, when we, you kind of pointed this out when we were talking about it, the Hippocratic Oath doesn't say do no harm, not in those words, but we all accept that that is part of our duty. Part of our duty as physicians, as providers of medical care is to do no harm. Do the financial incentives that are provided by industry do they really outweigh that promise or do they overwhelm that promise that we make to our patients? 
Well, I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, often people will say, you know, we took a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And I think what we really are talking about is we took an oath to put our patients' interests and preferences, and not, well, not preferences maybe, but their own well-being in front of our own interests, in particular financial interests. And that means doing harm sometimes, but we're looking at, is the potential benefit greater than the potential harm? Because you know that every intervention that we have has potential harm, but we want to see that the net is overall a benefit. So yeah, these, these biases can take us away from what's in the best interest of the patient and putting patients' interests first. That's really the, the key, the crux of the matter here is that our decisions on treatment, on, on how we evaluate patients, shouldn't be unduly influenced by something else. In this case, specifically, we were talking about those financial conflicts. But these are financial conflicts of the researchers, of the people who are writing the article. How much does that really impact the practicing clinician? Oh, we, we do have research that shows financial conflicts of interest can impact a clinician's prescribing habits and the use of various medical devices. So when you're looking at prescribing habits, there are examples where physicians are more likely to prescribe a statin or an opioid if there's financial conflicts of interest. And then if you look at physicians who receive payment from medical device companies, they are more likely to use their devices for doing endoscopy or orthopedic procedures. Understanding how important these conflicts are and how they influence is a good start. How do I know what conflicts are present, though, when I read the article? Because we do want to take that author's financial conflict and then really see how it influences me as a practitioner. How do I even know that those conflicts are there? Well, I think that it has evolved over the last 10 years, and many journals now require authors to disclose payments received from industry if it's related to the article that's being published. And they have created standardized forms, and there's one from the Committee on Medical Journal Editors, and it requires disclosure of any relevant financial conflicts of interest, and they put a time limit on it in the last three years. Here's the hard thing, Ken. When you read the article, sometimes these conflicts of interest are in the tiniest lettering of the entire article, or sometimes they don't exist in the article at all. You got to go to the supplement. You got to go back to the website to read about those financial conflicts. So I guess this brings us back to my next question, which is how good are the systems that are in place for either disclosing the conflicts or addressing those conflicts? Yeah, I've got to get out my old man glasses sometimes to read those financial <laughs> conflicts. more like a magnifying glass, Ken. You oh, need like a, the man. Hubble telescope sometimes to read <laughs> these things. <laughs> you know, the issue is, you know, they put the method section in smaller print and the financial conflict of interest in. I think those are two of the most important areas of the research article to read. And sometimes, and New England Journal, if you're listening, I doubt they are, New England Journal, <laughs> if you're listening, why do I have to go off-site or off the article to look for the financial disclosures on all these individual pages? Why can't it be collated? I mean, ugh, you make it difficult. Anyways, you asked a question about, you know, how good are these systems? And I'll give you a very simple answer. Not good. I mean, it's based on the honor system. Nobody's really checking these things. And my position about it being based on the honor system and not being very good is there's a human bias to underreport our conflicts of interest. It's a bias, right? We don't want to say, yeah, you know, we kind of, you know, and I don't say it may not be explicit, right? 
And there may, may not be any intent necessarily, consciously, but we do tend to minimize those things. And while we think financial conflicts of interest, they impact our colleagues, like, you know, Swami, you're completely in, you know, the back pocket of Big Pharma. You're a shill. I mean, obviously. But, you know, it doesn't influence me in any way. I think that's really important. We've talked about fundamental attribution error in the past, Ken. I think we've talked about it here. We've talked about it on MRAP at times. And it's this idea that the other person is the problem. It can't possibly be you that's the problem. And it's really hard for us to have that critical external look on ourselves and say, you know, this is how it's influencing me. But if the journal is almost standing in our way of even getting that information, it makes it so much harder for us to really know what's going on. And, and I remember there was a, a comedian that had this bit about how to get people to quit smoking. They were thinking about putting larger warnings on the pack of cigarettes. That's what we kind of need. We need a larger warning to tell us what those conflicts are. Make it nice and big. It shouldn't be the smaller print. It should be the biggest print to say, you know, there's some bias that's built into this article. Or of course, they could just choose not to print it if the bias was really important. But I'm not sure that we're going to get quite that far, Ken. I don't think we're going to get either the larger warning <laughs> or the not printing it. And with all of I that could just background- see, I could just see the visuals though, Swami. You know, like on these cigarette packages, they show these awful pictures, right? These horrible things that smoking can do. <laughs> what would they have on, 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 on the paper? Would they have like big, bold print and then like money in a brown paper <laughs> envelope sliding across uh, the table? How about a, a doctor in a white coat in a back alley- Taking like a brown Bitcoin bag of uh, or something? unlabeled I don't, bills. <laughs> I don't know. And, and I hope people picked up that we're, we're being a bit, you know, over the top here and that I had sarcasm in my voice when I was referring to you as a big shill because you're one of the good guys. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Ken. But all of that as background brings us back to the article, which really is an excellent article, a short read, really important one for people to look at. This is by Barlotti and his colleagues, and it looked at research articles published in the New England Journal of Medicine and in JAMA in 2017. So it's a couple of years ago, but I doubt that over that period of time, things have really changed all that dramatically. They checked the self-reported conflict of interest forms that were submitted to the New England Journal and to JAMA against the open payment website, dating back three years for the researchers on those articles. So basically they're cross-referencing what the authors said were their conflicts versus what is listed and is public knowledge are potential conflicts of interest. So Ken, in a nutshell, what did they find? Well, I hope people are sitting down for this. And if you're driving, pull off to the side of the road. They found that many authors had financial conflicts of interest. The vast majority of payments were not reported and it totaled millions of dollars. And this is just 62 articles, 118 authors that they were looking at. So it's not like it's across these huge, vast periods of time, 62 articles. 118 authors, they found 7. Point million in payee, and that's 80% that was undisclosed. It's a pretty big number when we're talking about that small of a number of articles. But let's be really crystal clear here, Ken. Let's not try to obfuscate what is going on. What does this tell us? Well, it certainly tells me that the current system for identifying financial conflicts of interest does not work. And another impressively scary statistic was if you looked at the top 23 authors from that one-year time period that were published in two high-impact journals, they received a total of 
$6.3 million and failed to disclose half of it. So these authors, the authors that published this article in BMJ Open, really did some amazing work. They're also, though, not looking at the hundreds of journals that are out there. We're only looking at two journals. They're not giving us real-time information. They're giving us information from about five years ago. But it brings us back to really the big question, which is, as an individual, what can I do to be more aware of these conflicts of interest and how they influence data, given everything we've talked about, Ken, and how difficult it can be to actually find out what those conflicts are? Well, my advice would be be skeptical (laughs) for many reasons. I mean, just because an author reports no financial conflicts of interest does not mean they do not have any financial conflicts of interest. And I've personally seen this with authors who've reported financial conflicts of interest in one journal and then published a similar article on the same topic in another article and declared no financial conflicts of interest. And I've also searched authors on ProPublica Dollars for Doctors website and discovered they do have financial conflicts of interest despite not disclosing any on the publication itself. What should journals then be doing to make sure this doesn't happen? What I'm really asking, Ken, is what should journals do to make this a little bit easier for the physician, for the clinician to know what's really going on? Well, it shouldn't be the physician or the clinician. It shouldn't be me. I mean, obviously I have a problem, right? Uh, fairly intense skepticism. I'm like, really? I'm going to need more evidence to, to accept that claim that you have no financial conflicts of interest. But we shouldn't be expecting the reader of a journal to go, hey, I wonder if they have any financial conflicts of interest. They said none. So now I'm going to go to ProPublica and start searching their name and check to see if they do. I think that responsibility should be on the journals. And we've done a previous episode talking about how much these publication houses make they should put some financial resources into searching dollars for doctors as part of their submission process. And if they are flagged with any financial conflicts of interest that are discovered on that site that were not disclosed, then the author should be given a chance to revise their manuscript and resubmit with that missing information. Ken, let's also be frank that there are some limitations as well to this particular article. It's only two high-impact journals in the U.S. that we're talking about. The database is generated from part of the Affordable Care Act, which requires manufacturers reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid, and Children's Health Insurance Program to submit that information regarding payments received by physicians. It does have some limits that we also have to be frank about. Yeah, absolutely. And there are limitations to this study, just like many other studies. And it does only apply really to these two high-impact journals. And there are thousands of journals out there. And it can only link to clinicians in the U.S. to these financial payments. Other countries, I think, should set up similar systems to try to identify these financial conflicts of interest. And we should also be really honest here, too. And, and Ken, we've, we've brought this up many times in the past. Just because there is a financial conflict of interest it doesn't mean that the paper isn't valid. It doesn't mean that the thing we're reading isn't good, well-done research. Yeah, absolutely. It should just make us more skeptical of the information. And when we point out financial conflicts of interest, sometimes it's perceived as an ad hominem attack. And it's not. If you have financial conflicts of interest, 
it's just another data point that needs to be considered. And we have this system right now of doing research that involves relationships with researchers. And it's a, it's a reality that industry and researchers will be put together. And I know some amazing researchers who have ties to industry. It doesn't make them a bad person and it doesn't invalidate their research. It just is a data point and it's part of transparency. So I can properly put their research in context. And knowing and quantifying these financial conflicts of interest is just one point that we need to consider. You've said it many times in this podcast and other ones that we've done. You're a skeptic. You're skeptical about these things. It means you ask questions you want to know the answers to. Any evidence to support your skepticism, particularly in this area? <laughs> Are you asking me to show up and put up? Are you asking <laughs> me to say, hey, I want to see the evidence? <laughs> I kind of want to see me? the evidence. I'm skeptical of your you're skepticism. skeptical of what I've said? Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> of course I have evidence to support my claims. I won't go out over my skis. I like to... Uh, have at least some evidence to support whatever position I'm holding. And so, my friend, there are multiple lines of evidence that financial conflicts of interest can introduce, and this is a key word, potential bias into randomized control trials, systematic reviews, guidelines, and even medical education. Ken, back in the December 2021 episode, we talked about medical education, financial conflicts of interest. I think it's a good one for people to go back to and listen to. There's also going to be some great references, some great links for people to check out who are more interested in this area. One of the articles that you threw over was when they happen in government, they're called corruption. In medicine, they're just a footnote. It's another paper that, I mean, aside from the fact that the title is so well written, is another good read to kind of dive into this area. And then to close it up, and another reason why people should go over and check out the show notes for this episode. You dropped over to me the conflict of interest bingo card. Yeah. You know, the financial conflicts of interest bingo card. This is, you know, and also you, we mentioned earlier, reflect upon yourself and your conflicts, right? And so when you see this bingo card, you go, well, it's just a pen. How many of us have taken a pen and said, it's just a pen, or it affects my colleagues, or it doesn't affect me, or it's more complex than that, or, you know, uh, how dare you? You know, so I like this conflict of interest bingo card because it gamifies it and it makes the education a little bit, a little bit more fun. Yeah. And I think it is a good reminder, especially that, that idea that it doesn't affect me, it affects other people. I think it's important for us to focus back on, to, to remind ourselves that we have the same human weaknesses as our colleagues, as everyone around us. And whatever you think is affecting everybody else, it's also affecting you too. And it's why we should really be skeptical, why we should be looking at these questions, why we should be exploring these questions. And Ken, it's, it's why we do these segments. It is. And as my mentor, Jerry Hoffman, taught me, he didn't take anything, not even a pen from industry. And so I follow his leadership in that area. And it's not because he or I are better than anybody else. We're just as flawed. We may be even more flawed in some people's minds, but you know, we can be influenced by just that pen. And so I try to mitigate against those biases. I can't eliminate all of them, but I certainly can try to mitigate against most of them. All right, Ken. Well, thanks so much for diving into this topic. Thanks for sending this article along. I, I think it was a really nice look at this topic. It's a nice, succinct review of, of what's going on here with some real data, which is helpful. And people should definitely check out the article, check out some of the links that we drop in the show notes. And Ken, of course, we'll be back in March with another time to talk a little nerdy. Oh, I look forward to talking nerdy with you every single time. 
All right. Well, until March, everybody out there, stay safe. You made it. You made it to the end, everybody. Hashtag outro rocks. Hashtag stay classy. Can I just (laughs) say, I'm not going to say in the intro, because this is really just for the true fans of the show. Those of you who are writing in and saying you made it all the way to the end. We love it. Thank you. We love it. We're going to keep our outro short this month because Mike and I are going to go run to the actual maybe Dave and Buster's until we make our own. The Sunjay Sturs. And Mike Sturs, <laughs> the competitor brand to watch the uh, U.S. play in the World Cup, which is the day we are recording this. Yep. So uh, go U.S. national team. Those of you who are doing something out there besides listening to EMA, I hope you're having fun. And I hope you're staying classy as always. Stay classy.